welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your no, I'm not fat Mr. Clean host, Cam Harless. And uh, Jessica should join us in a minute, but her, her internet spurred out just seconds before we were supposed to go on. So you just have me for a second. Uh, so why dilly-dally? Um, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know that this show is 100% brought to you by fans and patrons. So hit like, subscribe, share the show with your friends. We have all sorts of topics we've covered. Uh, share them with someone who might gain something from them. Also, if you are interested in occasional early episodes, Zoom hangouts, and our eternal gratitude, uh, hit up patreon.com slash the mad ones and uh, grab a shirt or a mug over at wearethemadones.com slash store. And you can let everyone know that you like us for some reason. Uh, but I have an exciting show today because, and it's exciting because the minute that I told people what this show was and what it was about, we started getting arguments against the, it wasn't even like, I didn't, we'll get to it. All I'm saying is hopefully we're going to piss some people off in a good way. Uh, I'm, I'm stoked about that, but we are joined by a, a friend of the show a, who eats tofur, tofurkey on purpose and unironically and likes to talk to us about Jesus on the show occasionally. And he, he invited along a friend. So joining us now is our good friend, Cody cook and the anti-war war vet, John D'Angelo. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty good. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm great. <laughs> yeah, happy to be Not here. Not subdued at all. I'll, I'll, also excited to be uh, joining my friend John because I haven't got to talk with him much. He's been he's been a busy guy lately. Yeah. yeah thanks for having me. Well, and it's it's funny. There we'll talk about this at length, obviously, but um there has been this um trend especially over the last two years, but it's it's really gained ground, and I keep seeing more and more of it online, are people who call themselves Christians or are otherwise very good Christians who are constantly calling for, or calling for is one way to do it, or like it, being excited about people being hurt or killed, be it about like the, the one of the wildest ones recently was a um I saw a supposed orthodox person on Twitter calling for the death of all Protestants because the Protestants are who brought in progressivism and it's all their fault. Which fair enough, Puritanism did is the precursor to progressivism. But like, dude, chill out. Um, but yeah, no, between that or just like, oh well, we should we should be willing to kill our political enemies. And I'm just, mm. or cheering on the idea that um, someone you don't like, someone who wears a mask or maybe even a government official talking about how much you want to see them drown or how much you want to see them die. It just, I, I keep, I'm disturbed, Cody. And I think you understand me well when it comes to seeing this, because I'm just like, I know the, the, I know what it's like to be a human because I am one and I know what it's what it feels like to want your enemies to be dealt with. I get it. But at the same time, as a Christian, as a man who says he follows Christ and wants to follow Christ, I find it really hard to justify that while also looking at something like Matthew 5. So I thought, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what Jesus called us to, which is to love our enemies. And what that looks like, because it seems like a lot of Christians have lost the plot, and it disturbs me a little bit. Am I am I crazy for seeing all of these things 
and being like disturbed. No, I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, it's you know, there, there's I, I, this episode is was love your enemies or, or uh, uh, enemy love. Yeah, I think it just called it enemy love. Yeah, enemy love. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the the, the Christian underpinning theologically of what we're going to be talking about. And and you know, there's there's a lot of ways we could go with this. Um, and you know, my my background is more you know, I don't have anything you know super interesting or crazy in my background, but my approach is kind of more scholarly. So like, I can. I can go into, you know, all the passages about enemy love and what they tell us and, uh, you know, how yeah. they can be put, sort of systematized and, and their their impact. Uh, I think it might be worth talking to John a little bit first because he has kind of more of an interesting bio than I do. Um, right. And I, th I think that's that's kind of where we I want to get started is because, you know, when Je Jessica will come on and have her space as well if she gets her stuff figured out. Um, but I find it interesting that, what we've the people that we have to talk about this are very different but all want the same thing so for me you know i'm a christian i always I, you know i used to be a neocon i used to be a, a nightmare all of that stuff but like for me i had a very specific experience that kind of changed my mind on how i view loving my enemies and it was one that made a lot of people i knew around me very mad at that time um, but I am, I am not a pacifist. I am about, I'll, I'll what I say is I'm about as close to a path pacifist that you can get without actually being a pacifist. Cause I, I do, I, I don't want to hurt anyone, but if it's, you know, my children or my wife being saved versus someone in my house with a, a gun, which may, which probably never happened. I'm going to choose my family and I, I would rather not hurt them. But if I, if I have to, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll repent. <laughs> I'll have to, I'll feel really bad about it, but I have to choose them. So that's where I am. So I'm not, I'm not coming at this from a pacifist point of view. And Cody, you, you are um, of the pacifist persuasion as well, I believe. Mm -hmm. And that's what's, and that's, what's interesting about John, because like we, like I said, when, we introduced him. He's the anti-war war vet. And so I think that that's another level of um, expertise that I don't have. Cody doesn't have. And I thought, Hey, let's start. And John, would you be willing to tell your, your story where you come from in this? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I've been a Christian almost 10 years. I um, started going to church with my uh, now wife. When I met her, uh, I got home from Afghanistan uh, just a few months before that. Um, and I was raised in like a um, culturally Catholic, um, but like secular Catholic, if such a thing exists, like we would go and Cradle Catholic. no one really, yeah, no one really like believed in God. And uh, I ended up not getting confirmed because it was like too much for my single mom to manage. Um, but that's all to say, I, uh, I was in the Marine Corps as a truck driver. Um, and I did one deployment to Afghanistan and then um, uh, started to have, you know, all of the normal uh, secular to Christian transformation growing pains. And one of the big ones was uh, like violence and, and sort of the nature of violence and grappling with all of that temporal stuff um, relative to my faith in Christ and the commandments that Jesus gives to to love your enemy and to, to be meek and humble and um, good to those who do uh, evil to you. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it's definitely a different perspective um, just because I think 
the military gives you a really good example of how easy and um, rote you can make dehumanizing someone enough to want to commit yeah. violence to them. And um, if you ever uh, get the chance, it's a quick, fairly quick read by uh, Lieutenant Colonel David Grossman, I think his name is, uh, called On Killing. And it's a book about like basically how you train the military um, individuals in basic training and stuff to see whoever the combatant forces as not a person, but like a, a term or a target silhouette. And that makes um, pulling the trigger easier because every human being has, um, almost all human beings have like a really innate aversion to killing other humans. Yeah. Did, I was going to say, John, doesn't he um, in the book point out that uh, the military didn't really figure out how to train people to kill properly until right before Vietnam, that if you go back to previous wars, you see, I mean, all these people who are supposedly on the battlefield shooting and they come back with, you know, <laughs> having not fired a single shot. Yeah. And like he, I, I may be uh, messing this up because it's been 12 years since I've read it, but um, uh, he talks about like the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, and how the amount of munitions that were fired in like a given battle would have accounted for like, you know, a tenfold increase in casualties, but they, suspected that most soldiers were shooting over the heads of the guys in these like firing lines because it's yeah. i mean if you think about what that must have been like to be 50 yards away looking somebody in the face and like muzzle loading and shooting somebody like it's it's terrible um yeah. and well, these are guys that like yeah maybe, i was gonna say all this some people on twitter seem to think they'd be ready for a civil war and it wouldn't bother them at all yeah <laughs> yeah yeah the people that talk the most about violence on the internet are the people who are least capable of carrying it out. I'm sure as yeah. like a near one to one. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't. I haven't read that book, but one of the things that I heard was, you know, that there was a change in training at a, I, I suppose, in Vietnam at a certain point, and uh, that one of the things that kept happening is they would wait till they were close enough, and as soon as they saw someone's face, it like it was the the make, making eye contact made them unable to kill the other person. Whereas they thought that yeah. they were prepared and trained to do it, um, and so yeah, like the definitely the the training in the military is wild. Uh, I had a friend who he wasn't a marine; he went into the army. Um, but before he went, he was a guy that I knew very well and I liked. He was like a, a pretty good kid, you know. And then he went into the army and he went through basic training, and I saw him. Like maybe it was before he had a deployment, but a after he'd had basic training and he had brought this knife or he'd bought one when he was on this trip and he just kept talking about how he couldn't wait to stick it in some raghead's head. And I was just like, ew, what, 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 like just wild that you would just say that, you know, nonchalantly. Oh, I can't wait to murder someone with this, you know? And I was like, I was uncomfortable with that. And then he actually went on deployment, I think, to Afghanistan. I'm not sure. And he was a, uh, I guess he is a Hummer driver or a Humvee driver. I'm not sure of the specifics. But he would talk about how when they were in Afghanistan and he was driving through the streets, or maybe it was Iraq, um, that they weren't allowed to stop the vehicle because of you know threats of ieds or whatever so they weren't allowed to stop and so you know if kids ran across they'd have to keep going 
And that was the rules is they couldn't stop. And so, and he told me very nonchalantly that there were a couple of times he saw kids crossing and he sped up a little bit to hit them or to try to hit them. And I was just like, are you even human anymore? I don't understand this. Do you have any, do you have any experience with any of those people or what happened over there? Like, do you have anything that you could tell me about why this guy was this way? Yeah. So I think, um, culturally in the military, there's like this very, uh, the, the word nonchalant is perfect. It's a very cavalier and it's purposeful. It's a, there's a very cavalier talk about specifically like whoever Oceania is at war with. And then everything that you talk about can, can draw back to killing them. There's even like these ditties where like they'll, it's a call and response where they'll say something and you say something else, or there's an expectation mm -hmm. that you'll respond in such a way. And often they want you to say, just respond to something with kill. So, you know, a hundred guys yelling kill all at once. And when you're like 18 and full of testosterone and stupid, it like really gets you going like, yeah, kill, we're going to kill me and my buddies, we're going to go kill. And, and this is like, you can read I'm, tons of accounts of guys from various wars, including the, the GWAT terror wars um, of people who like bought this whole line you know, pretty substantially and then got there actually was in one of the few roles where you would do killing and, and was horrified by it. Um, one of the more famous examples is Kokesh, right? Like he was, a, yeah. a, a grunt in like the early days of Iraq, Oh three, Oh five, something like that. And, um, I think he was in one of like the big, the big city sieges like Fallujah or something. So like that dude was in, in close, proximity to combat um for like extended periods of time and like you know it completely changed who he was uh, i think people in the military like this guy sounds like he may be and i don't want to like cast aspersions i don't know this dude but there's yeah. um there's a really thing where like the military is held in such high regard that it's for people for like average or below average people not necessarily this guy don't get me wrong but like generally speaking, it becomes a really good, convenient identity. And then yeah. you you put it out there as like, I'm the guy who carries a knife to like, uh, you know, the fire that everyone's having, hanging out around to talk about killing people because that's what guys in the military do. And look at me, I'm really tough and cool. And- um, I run over kids, how cool am I? <laughs> right, and like, I, so I was Motor T. Um, I was a truck driver, just like this guy was. Um, yeah. there's no such thing as like not stopping the, the mm. rationale would, I mean, of not stopping for IEDs is, is like the opposite. If you think that you see something, you call it out over the radio, you get EOD or whoever to come out and interrogate whether or not it's a bomb, you get away from it, but you stop so that it can be looked at. They probably don't want you slowing down in the cities a ton. Cause you can get, it's pretty amazing how like that slinky effect, you know, like you see in traffic affects the yeah. convoys or whatever, but. Um, the idea that like they said, you know, you can't stop, you have to hit kids is completely nonsensical, especially if he's our age and deployed anywhere in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, like there was no Wild West sort of thing going on where you could just like indiscriminately kill civilians. Um, Thank God. Yeah. It, it sounds like he thinks that that's what the military is supposed to do and look like and say, 
without realizing that he sounds like kind of an ass. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, well, that's good. So I mean, at least it's good to know that that's not actually the facts on the ground because, and he's just potentially just a, a dingbat, you know, trying to look cool, I guess. But I didn't speak to him after that point, though, because I was <laughs> so completely turned off by the by the attitude behind it that I just couldn't couldn't do it anymore. Um, because you know, like it, I got a lot of crap. Um, what, what was it? Two twenty. 10 that Osama bin Laden was allegedly killed. Yeah, I think so. And I, I was in college. Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> Gotta throw that in there. Um, but I was, I was in college when that news came about and it was a, it was a Christian college. And um, so I, and I just happened to be reading the book of Jonah and doing some, some treatments on that for, for school and some stuff. And that this happens and, you know, you hear this, you know, celebration outside in the quad. You hear all of the dorms around you getting really excited about this man dying. And it was probably one of the weirdest moments for me because that was the enemy that God chose to tell me that I should have love for my enemies was Osama bin Laden. Because I hear these people doing this. And I started doing it myself, and I had this huge, you know, check in my spirit. If you use those that type of terminology, I had this conviction that what I was saying and doing was wrong, that I shouldn't be celebrating the death of this person. I remember sitting there and and praying and and going, but God, you know, he killed, you know, two thousand people or whatever the official numbers are on nine eleven. Um, he. He did all of this. He deserved to die. Why can't I celebrate his death? And it was just, it was the, it was the strangest person for God to kind of check me with because it was like, we love our enemies. You know, we, he was someone that I wanted to save. And who, who are you to celebrate him dying in his not knowing Jesus? Well, he's, he's probably the perfect sort of candidate for, for that sort of um, revelation because I, I think based on the conversation so far, it sounds like really what we're talking about is like hyper politicization of everything in life, particularly on Twitter has, has driven people insane to the point where like entire swaths of people, blue team, red team, 50% of the population can just be written off. And like, you know, we can talk about killing or dying um, in a cavalier way. But I think for him, he was he was a, a a cartoon character, yeah. For the state to, you know, um, use as like a convenient boogeyman. Um, we referenced nineteen. I referenced nineteen eighty four earlier. But what was the name of that guy? Uh, the like ultimate Orwell? bad guy in oh. the in nineteen eighty four. It was like a the Jewish brother? name. Oh, oh, no, oh the, uh, the the Trotsky esque uh, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, doesn't matter. It's kind of like Manuel Goldstein. Like, yes, yes, yes. Goldstein. Um, it's it's just such a such a crazy time to be consuming media and listening to people talk as if like their words don't have any implications or whatever. I just think there's a lot of people willing to ratchet things up and not willing to like you know reap what they sow. Hey, look, it's Jessica. Hi. Sorry about that. <laughs> Hello. 
You sound quiet again, Jessica, unfortunately. When, when we were in the waiting room, she was a little quiet. I was worried yeah. that you were trying to avoid me because the last time I was on, you, you weren't able to make it either. I was like, I must have offended Jessica somehow. No, not at all. I, I was actually really frustrated trying to get back into the uh, studio because I knew I had missed the last episode with you. And I didn't want you to think that I hated you, which I don't. <laughs> um, is it any better if it's close yes, to me? I don't. Okay. All right. We'll just keep it really close to my face. And when I gesture, I'll try not to flail too much. So. <laughs> Should be all right. <laughs> what I miss? Uh, some stuff. Cam loves Osama bin Laden. I love oh. him. Awesome. Big fan. Okay. <laughs> I know what poster to get you for your room for your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, so to kind of get us back into that. So um, that Osama bin Laden was a big check for me and it was a learning moment about loving my enemies and about how it, you know, there's that classic verse, you know, we're not, our battles not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in dark places. You know, our enemies are not flesh and blood. And so that was a big lesson for me. And, and you're right. There is a lot of um, conversation online that's very cavalier, very nonchalant about the death of enemies. The like I, I mentioned, the that guy who's orthodox who was talking about how all Protestants should be killed. And oh, that you know, guy, all, you know, yeah, and lots of fun. The people who are saying, you know, you need to know, uh, you need to, the enemy friend distinction needs to be made now so that you know who you will or will not commit violence on if you have to. This, you know, this kind of conversations kind of talk, but. Uh, I don't know if we got to the end of your story, John. So you were you started having this this um, revelation through Jesus with Jesus and Matthew five while you were a marine. How, what how did that? What did it, what happened from there? Did you become a conscientious objector? Like what, what was what's the story from there? No, it was a pretty soft landing. Um, so I had kind of a weird uh, contractual thing the way it kind of worked out. I. I was a reservist um, by contract. So six years, I was supposed to do like one week in a month. But when I checked into my unit, I had like an extended time. I had to go to school because I had different trucks to whatever. And so when I finally got to my unit, they were deploying right away. And a kid broke his ankle and I was like the last guy on the, on the roster. They added me on. So I, I was like pretty pumped. But when I came home um, and, you know, had met my wife shortly thereafter, uh, I still had like two years to go. So I was still doing the reservist thing and still kind of, uh, you know, grappling with um, my military identity and like most of my friends being guys I just came home from Afghanistan with that lived in Connecticut, where I'm from, um, and my thoughts about Jesus. And uh, I took a like a political walk toward anarchy around the same time. And um, I don't, I don't quite know how to tie this back in, but I mean, ultimately I am, I think of the same mind of, as you are about the use of violence um, and uh, super disappointed in society. Yeah. Um, but we were kind of going around like, where, where are you on violence? Just, just so you know, Jessica, where are you on violence and, loving your enemies, all of that, because I'd said, you know, I'm, I'm as close to a pacifist as you can be without actually being one. Like I, I, it's firmly a defensive thing for me. Like if I, if I have to choose between you or my fam or my children, I'm going to choose my children. Um, and I want to, I, I kind of want to hear, um, Cody's thoughts as well, but where, where are you on this, this 
uh, spectrum, not autism spectrum. Yes. You're asking me? Okay. Yes. Um, Woman. We have, we need the woman's. The woman's perspective. That's what I'm here for. Um, Kill them all. (laughs) Wouldn't that be great if I was like, (laughs) no, let's massacre every last one of them. (laughs) Um, No, it's, that's not my position at all. Um, As a Christian, um, I think that we're told that we're to love our enemies. It's an explicit command and it flies in the face of everything that we know in our culture today. And it definitely flew in the face of the people living in the Old Testament, people living in the time of Jesus, when it was, you know, your insular group of individuals was your tribe of people were the only people that mattered. Everyone else was subject to summary destruction if they got in your way for resources, for, you know, any, any number of reasons. There's actually a really big problem of violence in the Old Testament that's really kind of hard to square with some of our modern values, which happen to come from Christianity. It's a whole other can of worms. Maybe we'll get into that. But I think that um, there's a problem when the modern reader looks at biblical descriptions of violence and biblical descriptions of war and translates them into their own time and into their own country. And so it can seem oftentimes that scripture is giving us permission or even condoning us to um, take up the sword, to be violent, to, uh, you know, all all manner of things seem to be given permission because this book is telling us a history, a story of things that passed. And we look at that, we're reading this history, and then we're saying, oh, this is um, what God wants from us, as opposed to these are the events that happened. And so I think it can be really confusing for a person who wants to follow God and wants to follow the way of the Christian. That's what it was originally called was the way, the way of the Christian. Um, It can be very confusing without sort of that historical context to understand what this story of, which is very violent, means to us. And so my opinion on violence is complicated. I believe in self-defense. I don't think that you have to just let somebody, you know, hurt your family to be a good pacifist or to be a good Christian. Um, There is the martyrs. They uh, did lay down their lives rather than to take up arms against other people, even people that were considered their enemies. And they would rather have died than to hurt these people. So it's a really interesting question that we have all these stories of violence, but we also have these stories of people who absolutely are rejecting violence, refusing violence, and trying to follow the way, which is not a violent way. There are so many times when there's a passage with Christ where he talks about having a sword, to go <laughs> sell your cloak and go buy a sword. And that is the one I hear most often when people are trying to justify violence in modern times. There's some context there about you know, uh, his arrest was forthcoming. They believed him to be a rebel leader. And if you find this guy and he's completely unarmed, you might not have justification to arrest him. So by having in this large group of people two measly swords, the Roman authorities were able to take him in. And so there's historical um, and literary context to why Christ tells his disciples to buy swords. But unfortunately for the American Christian, corporate Christian in 2020, all you're reading is sell your cloak and buy a sword. And you're not sort of like bringing the context around it. 
So um, I think it's it's complicated. And I think that we a lot of times people read what they want into the scriptures. And unfortunately, what they want, because we live in a fallen world, is violence. And they want permission yeah. to do violence and they want permission to hurt their enemies. They're going to read that permission anywhere that they can. I know that when I, before I um, kind of changed my overall view uh, and started thinking about it as an adult, uh, one of the things I would say was, you know, if violence was good, good enough for God in the Old Testament, it's good enough for me, or war. And I'm like, I can't believe I said that. No. Because I, I mean, this, for many reasons. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about what that violence was, why it was used, why it, it seems like God very much told people to do it. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it's, it's, it was me taking it out of God's hands and putting it into my own. Like if it's good enough for God, you know, I'll do whatever I want. And that's, there's a, that's weak. There's a super interesting book that I read pretty recently called God is a man of war. It's written by uh, father Stephen DeYoung. If you guys are interested in looking into that. And he actually addresses uh, the problem of violence in the old Testament. And one of the interesting things that he says, um, most people will kind of hand wave the violence of the old Test Testament away and say, well, it's allegorical. It's meant to teach. Um, the enemies uh, are actually your sins. There's all kinds of ways of sort of like dismissing what was actually quite bloody violence in the ancient world that would have been part of the lives of the people living in it, including the lives of the people that are told in the Old Testament. So um, Father Stephen DeYoung doesn't do that. And it's one of the first times I've ever heard anybody do that, where he actually like addresses the violence head on. And an interesting thing, there's a passage that talks about let no Edomite be left alive. I believe it's in Psalms, maybe 69. Don't quote me on that, but it's in Psalms. It says, no, let no Edomite be left alive. And one of the things he addresses about that is to a modern reader, that means execute every last Edomite. Let no woman, man, or child Edomite be left alive. In the ancient world, when there was war and one group took over another group, you would not kill every last one of them. People were valuable. People were valuable for, for work. Women were valuable. I mean, there were all slaves were valuable. You wouldn't destroy this um, very valuable means of production in a world where hand to mouth existence was there for everybody. You would incorporate them into your people. So when you would cease to be an Edomite, you would become an Israelite. So the way of life of the Edomites was not to be left alive, not every last man, woman, and child to be executed. So there's a problem when a reader in 2020 reads that line and thinks in his brain, oh, that means genocide. That means God condoned genocide. <laughs> And then you have this problem where you have to separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. You have to make them separate entities. And for me, that doesn't Gnosticism. track. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what I think is instead the case is that we don't understand the world of the that world and those people living in it and how commonplace violence actually was. Um, so there is a there is a problem of old violence in the Old Testament, but it's a problem of the modern reader. I think if we even went back 100 years, 200 years from the time that we are now, we're not talking going back as far as biblical times, just a little bit back in time. I think the level of violence that was commonplace for most people would be shocking to us. And that world, why it shocks us is actually 
because of the way that Christianity has changed the world. But that's just a personal theory of mine. <laughs> um, Very good. I was, <laughs> Cody, I don't want to step on your toes if you wanted to jump in. But you go, you go first. I, I was just thinking as you were talking about like the Western church and its failure to sort of make a, a distinct Christian culture that incorporates these like important values like peace or uh, a striving towards pacifism. Um, and simultaneously, as you were kind of rounding out there, I, I, after joining the military and coming home from Afghanistan, I became uh, an EMT. I was on an ambulance and now I'm an ER nurse. So my entire adult life has been like dealing with the realities of mortality. And I, I notice that that's something that most people are, you know, in our society don't really grapple with much and don't have never really seen like death as right. you would have, you know, 200 years ago. Um, you know, think about like the child mortality rates of like the 1850s, 20% of everyone's children were dying. And I, I, I think life it was just fundamentally more um, dangerous. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the value of life was more apparent because you you could see the fragility of of life every day um but we we are so insulated from violence from death from disease mostly um no one gets a cut and thinks like well that's it you know i'm i'm gonna wait for this thing to turn gangrenous and i gotta say my last goodbyes like these things don't occur to us and i i, I think it robs us of an opportunity to see the importance of life and its fragility um, and something that like we as Christians should be on the forefront of reinserting into the conversation, especially on places like Twitter where these knuckleheads like Starbucks are talking about killing people. That's interesting because we were talking to a, um, a morgue tech in the episode before this one or the one before it. Two before. Um, two before it. And we had also talked to a girl who uh, specialized her era was the Victorian era specifically about death and how when family members died, people used to keep them in the home. You would mm -hmm. die in the home. You were born in the home. And so like you're saying about um, being connected to that line of mortality, we shunt that away now. All of our dying is done in secret places and in, in sterilized environments. And it's no longer something, it's, it's so much more shocking to us than it would have been to people just a hundred years ago. And you're right, we've limited ourselves a great deal by by doing that. And that's why we've talked about it twice, is because it's something that I think is very important, and Jessica agrees, something that's very important for people to grapple with, death and what it is and how we deal with it. How, And so she even said after our last episode with GW, which was good, he was an autopsy tech and an embalmer, and we, we were able to ask some really cool questions, some really deep questions, and some really weird questions that people threw in in the chat. Um, but she goes, you know, that still doesn't seem like quite the conversation you were looking for. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, we haven't hit it yet. And she goes, well, you can give one more try. We can talk about death one more time. And so we're going to get there. <laughs> Eventually, we're going to get the death conversation that I really want. Because um, I have to go shake the willies off every time. <laughs> <laughs> I, It's... <sighs> It's a, it's a topic that people are scared to talk about and something that we should we should probably think about at least weekly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I do I do want to to wrap um, 
Cody into this, and I want to get his his. Um, I I kind of always oh, he's, he's pacifist, but I mean that's not enough. I want you to tell me your thoughts, Cody, because I want you to actually be a full participant since we all we've all hit that. Yeah, I I think it could take us a little too far afield to kind of go into Old Testament violence too much. Um, I will say that I agree with Jessica that the 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 view of like origin or whatever that we're talking about. Uh, we're going to um, take these Old Testament passages and allegorize them is not really doing justice to those texts. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when people say, you know, I, I'm going to appeal to the Old Testament to justify violence. I say, well, that that's perfect if you are a, uh, you know, first millennium BC uh, <laughs> a Jew who's part of the theocracy of Israel. But if you're not, then that doesn't really work. Um, so, but there's more we could say about that, but I just, I think it would, it would take us a while. What I will say, um, when I think about this love your enemies conversation, um, I think that we have to define our terms a little bit. And I think the first term that's, I think, really significant is the word love. And so when we talk about enemy love, um, it should be clear uh, that when Jesus said, love your enemy, he's not talking about, he's not commanding an, an organic warm feeling, right? It's an act that's chosen. Um, some people say love is a verb, right? And um, I think uh, Thomas Aquinas, who's a, a Catholic theologian, he defined love as a choice to will the good of another. And so for me, I, I think that's kind of key to what we need to be talking about, what we need to be thinking about when we talk about love. Um, and so for me, there, there's a pretty clear line from there to pacifism. And it's because when uh, enemy love is defined in the New Testament, um, it, there's really three components, although I think the third and the second are kind of the same thing. One is that you forgive your enemies. Two is that you do good to them. And three is that you don't do evil to them or kill them. <laughs> um, and so, of course, you also love your neighbors, you love your family. Um, and so, you know, for, for me, I know there are some pacifists who are much more extreme about this, but um, I, I'm not, I'm not opposed to violence per se in every circumstance. If you uh, restrain somebody who's having a psychotic break, you're doing violence to them and that you're exercising force upon them against their will, but you're not hurting them. You're not being unloving toward them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in, in, in a situation where you're taking someone else's life, um, I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine a situation where that might be loving, maybe a, a, like an assisted suicide situation you can make an argument for. Um, but but so that that's to me where, where there's a sort of a straight line between um, you know, enemy love and not killing them. Um, and, 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 you know, uh, I can go into some of the passages. It's actually interesting because the old Testament, um, believe it or not, has some really great passages on enemy love. So when Jesus says, you've heard to hate your enemies, well, there's not actually a passage in the old Testament that says to do that. <laughs> um, you do have a passage like in Exodus 23, four through five, that says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you should bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving it with him. You should rescue it with him. Um, and so there's this idea that you, even if somebody's your enemy, even if somebody who hates you or you hate, you, you are supposed to help them, right? And uh, Paul, when he gives, a, I think, a pretty strong statement against violence for Christians, he's citing uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 25, uh, 21 through 22. If you're hungry, hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Uh, and, and what's interesting is the reason that's it's, it's given for this is you'll heap burning coals on his head. <laughs> and so there's this act, too, in which sometimes this enemy love 
can be convicting for that person. Um, that can change their perspective. And if it doesn't do that, then what you're actually sort of doing, and, and I think this this fits in with enemy love, even though it seems kind of contradictory, is if you show mercy or love or forgiveness or kindness to somebody who refuses to show it to you, and it doesn't change their heart, you're actually compounding their guilt. <laughs> and uh, and and you know, without without doing harm to them yourself, you're basically saying, um, you know, God can deal with this, and and that's appropriate and fine. Um, and so, uh, so th- anyway, we're, we're going a little bit afield here, but um, yeah, so that, that's where I would connect. And of course, there's explicit passages like uh, Matthew 5 uh, that, that John mentioned is kind of transformative for him. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Um, uh, you know, if, if a, a man strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Um, and so I think that these are uh, passages like that, like the one in Romans 12, where Paul is quoting Proverbs where he says the state is an avenger, but you're not, you leave to God to avenge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a very kind of clear delineation. The state does this Christians do that. Um, um, so, you know, um, I think it's worth noting. And, and I think it's re- relevant that John is here. Some people take these passages like in Matthew five uh, and say that Jesus is really saying, um, you know, this is about personal enemies. Jesus is saying to love your personal private enemies, not national enemies. As, as Ted Cruz once said to a room full of Republicans, uh, you know, we should nuke them and see if the sand glows. Um, and uh, it was you know, applauded thunderously for that. In contrast, uh, Ron Paul said we should follow Jesus and not, <laughs> and not uh, kill people. And he was booed uh, at a Republican debate uh, by a lot of uh, evangelicals, supposedly. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a lot of uh, connections here, and I've I've got like sort of a full list of verses and, and exegesis, but I think it would be a little bit boring if I got too deep into that. Um, but uh, I'll maybe mention one more, though. First uh, Peter uh, two and into three uh, is pretty fascinating because Peter gives Christ as the example that we're supposed to follow, um, and uh, so when he lists the things that Christ did, he says he committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Don't repay evil for evil, but on the contrary, bless. Uh, now, who's there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear, nor be troubled. But in your heart's, heart's honor, Christ the Lord as holy, Right. Uh, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so Peter sees when he says to behave like Jesus, he's giving these examples of not retaliating, not returning violence for violence, reviling for reviling, uh, but to be willing to suffer if necessary, um, and that God will reward. And I think when people are unwilling to take that sort of seriously, and and, and I'm not criticizing you guys here, because I think you guys are much, I wish that where you guys are on this work, I'm not exactly pacifist, but I think there's a lot of weight here leading in that sort of direction in scripture. I wish, I wish I'd be happy if most Christians felt that way about it. I, I, you know, um, unfortunately they're too way too far in the other direction. Um, but I, I think um, you have to take that seriously because it's a strong scriptural emphasis. Um, so anyway, uh, for me, that leads pretty, pretty directly to pacifism, but I understand that the, uh, the details can be complicated, and, and I'm happy for somebody who says, you know, you know, this is the the Christian witness. This is what Jesus says. 
I'm going to try to follow it, but maybe there are some complicated circumstances where it can't be followed perfectly. Okay, fine. Mm -hmm. fair enough. Mm -hmm. You can say that. Yeah. I'll accept that. Um, but, yeah. but you have to take it seriously. <laughs> yeah. There was a, there, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was going to say there was a, um, a talk I listened to recently given by an Orthodox priest in which we were talking about um, the church shootings, that there have been people who have come into churches with guns in several mm -hmm. cases, a parishioner was also armed and returned fire. And in other cases, no one was armed and many people were killed. And the priest was sort of asked about, you know, what is the sort of orthodox perspective or what is at least your personal opinion on whether we should be able to defend ourselves in the church? And he said something I thought was really interesting, which is that I have the right to decide that I'm going to be a martyr, that I'm going to die for my faith. If everybody else in the room is under my excuse me under my care i don't have the right to decide that they will be martyrs too and so i do have a duty at that point to defend them and so i thought that that was really interesting because i'd never considered it that way before how it's come he would be the one defending though maybe Wouldn't the room is full of children maybe you're in a sunday school classroom everybody there is a child except for you here's a so that the priest then is obligated to be strapped just in case. <laughs> no, no, no. He's not seeing him as a priest. He's saying if you're you're a parishioner. Okay. okay. If you're talking about as a parishioner, somebody comes in <laughs> blasting. Yeah. You know, some of us carry. I'm yeah. not going to say whether I do or not. Some of us carry whether you um, return fire or not. Well, I'm in a room full of people. My my congregation, the people I go to church with they're helpless. Do I have the right, even though I might be a martyr, that I might lay my head down and, and be killed? Do I have the right to let them be killed when I know that I could stop it? Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really, he didn't, he, it was very open-ended. He left yeah. it open-ended. And I thought that's really something to think about because I don't know that I, I could in good conscience, let someone slaughter my congregation in front of me when I knew mm -hmm. that I could do something to stop it. Does that mean, though, because it seems like if I'm following to its logical conclusion, uh, that means everybody in every church needs to be strapped. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know about needs to be. I mean, yeah, yeah. some people just don't carry. Others do. I yeah. mean, others... but if, if you do carry, then you have to be ready to, to shoot, I guess. I mean, if, if you're carrying around a sword, you yeah. have to be ready to draw it, I think. Yeah. What, what, so what's kind of interesting, I, I, I think there's I, I, it's like I, I don't want to undermine the, the practical weight of what you're saying or the emotional weight of what you're saying, but but I also like because my my the way I look at this is kind of more uh, from an academic or like a scholarly sure. approach. I think it's worth noting that the, the earliest Christians, of course, were just completely nonviolent, uh, well, with some exceptions maybe, um, and then once they started justifying violence, um, they did not actually justify self-defense. And so if you look at Augustine or some of these early uh, theologians, earlier, early-ish theologians, they would say, well, you know, the state's allowed to kill because they've got the sword. And yes, as Christians, we're not allowed to, but if we're agents of the state, it's okay. But they yeah. still said self-defense is not appropriate. And, and it's because the New Testament does not actually give any sort of uh, textual uh, support for self-defense. It does talk about the uh, the magistrate carrying the sword for some purpose. And so that was basically all that Augustine felt comfortable justifying was that the state might be able to kill. Um, and so it's, you know, I think maybe perhaps part of the difference between why he went there and we don't go there is, is partly because of what the text says. But I think it also maybe a little bit 
that we're, I don't know, maybe we're part, as part of an individualistic culture is something we feel that that's something we as individuals should be allowed to do. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting though. I, um, I, I do think it's worth noting that I think Augustine's point doesn't really work anyway, because as I said, Romans 12, Paul says the state does this, but we don't. Um, Matthew 5, when he talks about loving your enemies, he's not just talking about personal enemies because the examples he gives are things that Roman soldiers did to Jews. The idea of uh, yeah. you know, taking the, uh, someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. There was right. this, this law that a Roman soldier could force you to carry a pack for one mile, but no more. And so Jesus is sort of encouraging a kind of loving subver subversiveness <laughs> where you don't fight back through violence, but you do sort of embarrass and shame the person and also uh, take back your own, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, a dignity, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's there's definitely some wiggle room here. And like I said earlier, I, I don't think that loving your enemies means that if you could tackle a guy and stop him from killing somebody that you shouldn't do it. I think right. that's a loving, a loving action. It does get a little bit more complicated when you're saying, I've got to kill this guy. Uh, I have to take it upon myself to kill this person. Um, is that loving? I mean, maybe if you weigh it in the balance and say, maybe I'm saving other people, well, that's loving toward them. Uh, assuming the yeah. only way you can respond is, is, is to, you know, respond with violence. But, but the, there's a lot of ifs here, I think. And I think part of what I see in a lot of these objections is this sort of confidence that if only I could kill somebody, everything would be okay. And I don't entirely buy that either. <laughs> um, that that would that that's going to work as well as people think it's going to work. I think people have maybe a little bit too much confidence in themselves after watching too many dirty Harry movies. <laughs> sure, I, I also John could do it. I don't know. In these, um, in, in the lives of the saints, which is something I've been studying pretty hard over the last year, you see story after story of a person who, you know, I, I'm thinking specifically. I'm trying to. I'm going to mangle his name. I'm sure. Saint Focus, who was a gardener, who the Romans sent soldiers to arrest a Christian named Focus. So those Roman soldiers come to his house. They knock on the door. They said, hey, do you know this guy named Focus? And he's like, yeah, I'll take you to him. But first come in, have some dinner. He feeds them dinner. He feeds them drink. He washes their cloaks. He basically, you know, is really hospitable to these guys. They said, cool, awesome. You're a great guy. Thanks for all of this. Do you Can you tell us where that dude Focus is? He's like, well, I've got great news for you. I'm the guy. You found him. Like, so like. Literally, this man, knowing that these soldiers were going to carry him off to his own death, fed, clothed, washed their feet, all of these things. And I, I see these people as being closer in time to the original Jesus movement. They definitely probably had a much stronger sense of what was expected of them, I think, than we do today. And so if you kind of take an American, a corporatized American Christian and put them in that situation. They said, no, I'd have every right to blast these two guys right out of my house, point the barrel and fire, you know, but that wasn't what was committed to history as these people were great Christians, great examples of Christianity, the kinds of Christians we should emulate ourselves after and follow. And um, there is a, a discrepancy there or a disparity between the, um, two types of people because today christians today you don't hear that attitude you wouldn't you wouldn't see someone feeding the person who was gonna drag them out to be executed yeah 
No, and, and listen, I actually agree that, that you have every right, every, a person has every right to self-defense, um, but Christians are, are sort of called to give up their rights. So it's like, uh, you know, from a human perspective, you know, I'm a libertarian, but but I think at that point, we're talking about something kind of secular. We're talking about, you know, uh, people's relationships horizontally when they're not really Christians. Um, and, uh, um, but I think, it's, it's different when you're a Christian that's called to this higher ethic. And so, you know, I, I, I'm not going to judge somebody uh, because they, because they, um, you know, defend themselves or defend somebody else. Like I understand, you know, it's, it's, it's a complicated, tough situation. Um, but I do think, you know, Christians are, are, are called to do something different. And that's why these people were considered saints, like a cut. These were like, this dude is a cut above. Yeah. Like, this is not something you're going to have the average person doing is, oh, yeah. here, you're here to carry me off. Let me feed you and wash your feet. Yeah. Like, well, I'm yeah. not sure I could, uh, even knowing the story of focus and knowing that that's expected of me, I'm not sure. I don't yeah. I don't think we know until we're put in this situation. No, that, that's totally fair. Yeah. And I can't say exactly what I do. I just know what I what I think I should do. Right. And to get a little bit Protestant on you. Um, you know, Catholics and Orthodox talk about saints as these sort of people who are these sort of stellar examples. But saint is a word that Paul uses for every Christian. Yes, I, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. Yeah. And um, I'm using the, that, of course, in a, the context that most people know the word sure. saint to me. Absolutely. These specific people were kind of um, singled out and their stories were singled out because they were extraordinary in some way or they really um did their level best to follow what yeah. was expected of them. And so, um, yeah, but I agree with you. I think that we're all called to be saints and that um, in the Orthodox theology, the uh, the attaining of theosis, like you're always supposed to be trying to be a saint. Yeah. Like you're not supposed to consider yourself a saint, but you should always be trying to be a saint the best you can. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> One of the things that's, um, that kind of brought this uh, conversation to my mind um, ha like I said earlier, has been these people on Twitter and on Facebook who are telling people to go to a local political meeting and bring a gun or who are um, trying to make violence against your political foes normal or like that guy that is quote-unquote orthodox on Twitter saying that all Protestants should die. Um, and we can get into the specifics if you want to Cody and call a spade a spade if we want to do that in a minute. Um, but, uh, can I say one quick, quick little thing about that? What's that? There are a lot of people on the internet purporting themselves to be Orthodox. They will have Orthodox names. They will put or our symbolism in their um, profiles. They will act in every way in Orthodox. But if you actually ask them, they're barely a catechumen or inquirer. They're not even members of the Orthodox Church a lot of times. And so it's just, you know, when someone is purporting themselves to be, there's this whole ortho bro culture on Twitter that is full of people who are not Orthodox and are espousing anti-Orthodox theologies. And so all I'm saying is that just because you see the cross with the little dealy at the bottom, don't suspect that that person is an orthodox <laughs> just because they like our symbols. Just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah. That's fair. I've noticed a lot of individualist orthodox who don't go to church but call themselves orthodox because they have some appreciation for the tradition. Which is impossible. You cannot be an orthodox separate from the church. That is not the theology. We don't. That's not that's part why, of our. That's why I keep putting, you know, scare quotes yeah. around the word orthodox. And I'm being. 
general knowledge. <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know you but, know. Um, but one of the one of the reasons I bring this up is because so if you look at Matthew 5, which is it has the love your enemies and hate, uh, pray for those who persecute you verse. But it also it Jesus elevates the law past what they're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So you you have like in verse um let's see verse 27 you heard the commandment that says you, you must not commit adultery but i say anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in in, in his heart you know he elevated it it says you know adultery is bad but you shouldn't even be visualizing and fantasizing about someone else's wife mm -hmm. and it, it it also talks about um murder you know it says you should not uh you've heard your that our ancestors were told you, you must not murder if you commit murder you're you're subject to judgment but I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are sus suspect to judgment. If you if you call someone worthless or an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of Gehenna, mm -hmm. of hell. And I say Gehenna specifically because I need you to know that it's not just the word hell. <laughs> specifically, the Valley of Hymnon. Just throwing that out there. I think we had an episode <laughs> about that at some point. <laughs> but you know these verses and i'm sure cody would probably have some good little bits here and there that he can think of too it's our words matter you know because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and if we have murder in our hearts if we're talking about how our enemies should be slaughtered how i mean i don't like anthony fauci but talking about how he should be knocked off the planet <laughs> bothers me. I mean, like I said, I, I talked about Osama bin Laden. I was uncomfortable with that. And so there's this, I think, a very, uh, there's this sickness that's very, I, I don't want to say it's human. I want to say it's the corrupt part of humanity that's mm -hmm. in all of us that wants to see our enemies broken. You know, like what's the Conan, uh, the barbarian uh, oh, thing? Um, what is best in life? Uh, to see your did you see the oh shoot i'm gonna forget it now this is here and his father to hear the lamentations of their women yeah see them driven before you and to hear the lamentations of their women <laughs> yeah. which i that... use in inappropriate situations <laughs> like bake sales <laughs> right but that that, yeah. <laughs> that seems to be for some reason because of the fall because of what we've lost that let that humanity that we've lost because it's not oh this is human it's we've lost the portion of humanity that this is a, a lacking it's not a feature it's it's a bug <laughs> it's not supposed to be there right. um but i think it's these words i mean even some of the memes and i'm not saying you can't do helicopter memes even though that's so 2016 but like if you look at the 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 discourse that we have now, it seems like those helicopter memes became more and more serious over time mm -hmm. in the online space. And I think it's indicative of a heart issue in a lot of people. And that's what I want to talk about because that is so dangerous. You don't want to start going down that road. Yeah. Well, and if, Actually, uh, like John might say something. I, I feel like I've talked a little bit recently. If John wants to say no, something. No, no, please go, Cody. I like listening <laughs> to you. Um, hey, come on. The, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I know how to pronounce his name. Is it Peter Quinones? I think Quinones? it's Quinones. 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 There you go. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I think I, I saw he did the uh, the film, the uh, uh, Monopoly of Violence, right? A little <laughs> long, but it wasn't bad. Anyway, he, he recently uh, posted on uh, my mama. Facebook. My mama told me, yeah, if I can't say something nice, I, I shouldn't say anything at all. And so I'm just gonna not say anything about that movie. That's fine. Well, well, here's the thing. <laughs> I I don't like it when so so I'm I'm in sort of academia a little bit, right? A little bit mm -hmm. in a way. So um, the uh, the way I look at it is, if you're not citing somebody when you <laughs> then then you're 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 plagiarizing. And so <laughs> this isn't me to call him out specifically or anything like that. It's just he, he'd said something recently that's relevant to our conversation. Uh, he posted publicly on Facebook, uh, the time for debates is over. The friend slash enemy distinction is all that matters. And then when asked by a commenter if he loved his enemy, he responded that he traded his cloak for a sword. Uh, referencing that uh, that uh, that Luke passage, uh, Luke twenty two thirty six, that uh, Jessica mentioned. Which, by the way, I've got some great exegetical work on that, and it's it's in my book, which is free right now on Kindle. <laughs> what belongs to Caesar? Anyway, um, <laughs> so so yeah, that, that's how he looked at it. So basically, his position seems to be, or at least resembles, this view that libertarians should set aside their values and compromise with right wingers to defeat the left. This friend enemy distinction, right? So the enemies are those who, I guess, are on the left, who are, you know, all these secret pedophiles, I guess, um, and uh, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, it, it seems that is he suggesting at least that violence is is at least an open question, right? It's a possibility. And you know, obviously, this isn't only non-libertarian because it violates like the non-aggression principle, uh, sure. which seems to be have been traded in by uh, traded in like by these some neocon basically by these. Like, so-called libertarians for this like neocon preemptive strike philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. It's also an example of destructive collectivist thinking, which is sort of ironic. Uh, but but I think more importantly, it violates the Christian command to love your enemies. Um, and so uh, the political polarization thing is, is definitely a piece of this. Um, uh, I'd read a book in, in preparation for this discussion by Arthur Brooks. He's like a center-right policy analyst called Love Your Enemies. And one of the arguments he'd made is that left and right hating each other over political differences is pretty silly uh, because while liberals and conservatives weigh moral concerns a little differently, they ultimately share the same worldview morally. And as a libertarian, I thought, well, yeah, that's the problem. They have the same bad moral worldview that allows state violence and stealing and so on and so forth. But <laughs> if you step back and take a bird's eye view, I think it's he's right even about libertarians that we're all really trying to do roughly the same thing. We're trying to figure out how to be good people. We're trying to figure out how the world can function well uh, with, you know, justice and fairness and uh, equity and, uh, you know, prosperity, right? Those are all things that we would like to see happen. Um, and, but we're fallible. And so all of us, to some extent, have wrong answers to that question, how, how to get that kind of world, right? And, um, you know, I, I know I probably do right now. I'm going to change my mind about some things over time. And so it's weird to have these sort of purity tests where if you're not where I am, you're the enemy and I might do violence to you. I might even initiate force to try to protect myself preemptively from you. Uh, right. It's it, it, these anyway, the, the, these purity tests are just are so bizarre because ultimately what we're trying to do is persuade each other. And I don't think you do that with this kind of macho posturing about violence that, that John and I, John was talking about earlier, these people who uh, talk about violence, but, but would never do it because they're just, you know, 
well, uh, well oh gosh, who was it who said it? Uh, was it Drake? Uh, uh, trigger fingers become Twitter fingers, right? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's and, good. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think if you look at if you look at, I mean, just part of it, just from an efficacy standpoint, does this uh, sort of posturing, does this polarization produce anything? Am I going to persuade somebody no. to become a libertarian or an anarchist or something because I tell them that they're the enemy and I might kill them because I think they're a pedophile? There is actually a great example of this in my own life. In 2016, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter. Yeah. I, okay. I, I can't do this anymore, guys. Bye. <laughs> no. Um, within, within a year, um, yeah. Rand, Rand Paul was attacked pretty violently by his neighbor, mm -hmm. was put in yeah. the hospital, had a punctured lung. It was an awful attack. And all of the people that I associated with in the political spectrum were cheering for it. Oh, they yeah. thought it was the greatest thing on earth that Rand Paul was having to have emergency surgery because his neighbor beat the crap out of him. Sure. Um, that That's violence... literally an example of not loving your neighbor. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, in quite a literal sense. So <laughs> I, I was sent away from my political group by the violence that they were showing, yeah. by the violence that they were celebrating. So I can't imagine that there's not another person like me who's seeing uh, Pete tell people that we're gonna we're gonna kill our enemies, we're gonna beat up our enemies, not walking away, yeah. saying, "Man, these libertarians are effed," because there's no way that I'm I'm gonna condone political violence. Sure, it's just you know. And also, cool. I would have been on the chopping block a year before. Yeah. I I started looking into other kinds of political values, and within a year, I had moved more toward a libertarian space from a socialist space. Yeah. So the span of a year. I would have been worthy of death and then not worthy of death. That's a very interesting distinction to make. It's like uh, you're alive when you're out of the birth canal, but not when you're in, yeah. you know? <laughs> Could I? Oh, go ahead, John. Sorry. Oh, I just wanted to play devil's advocate on behalf of Canonez. Um, but if you have a thought, I want you to finish it. I... We're, we're, we're beating up on Pete today too. Also like, <laughs> well, sorry. So I don't, <laughs> I don't really, I don't know him. I've heard him a few times and I, I know that he's like grown quite a bit in like the social media space and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. I do know that from one of the podcasts, I think he might've done with Michael Malice that he was, he grew up at, in a Christian household and um, mm -hmm. just, I, I made a quick list of the things that he had said um, related to that. And I think, I think you can very much make a sensible argument from maybe my perspective as a, um, you know, maybe budding pacifist. I don't know that I'm comfortable with the term, but this idea of like not wanting to be violent, but being comfortable with self-defense. I think that he would argue that he's not, not taking a preemption policy so much as he's taking a, a self-defense posture. And that in today's day and age, we've gotten closer to any, any ideal of what a society should look like for most major political philosophies. And yet, right. if you were to go on any Twitter thread, you would think that like we were, we were like on the brink of, you know, the end yep. of civilization as we know it. And I, th I think that part of the reason that's the case is because there are these groups of people who have, who have created these like, um, these castes amongst amongst ourselves, whether it be race or, you know, um, fringe political ideology or whatever. And it's very easy to feel powerless in those in those circumstances. And and then being a martyr versus being, um, you know, a, a zealot willing to die for the cause becomes the question. 
And I think taking a step back from all of this conversation about politics and reminding oneself that like, even, even with a, you know, a pending potential economic calamity and, you know, baby formula being short or whatever, like we live in such a time of abundance and, and goodness for like what it means to just be human and have our basic needs met. And like the political sphere is toxic and terrible, but it's still pretty great relative to almost all of human history. And I would rather live now than any other time and in any other country. Um, and if we start to remind ourselves of that and not of the fact that like, you know, libertarians, um, broadly speaking, are, you know, othered in political conversation or like the enemy for the state or whatever, like, I'm a pretty radical anarchist. Um, Cody and I have gone back and forth about that quite a bit. Like, I'm, I'm of the same mind as Pete in a lot of ways politically, but like, I can't see myself as um, being on the defensive because like the enemy is, is built by these institutions of power trying to like create these divisions. And I think reminding ourselves of that, that we're better than that, and that like you can just plant stuff in your yard and, you know, get a callus on your hand doing some manual labor and like live a normal life, loving your kids and having a normal family is like the most subversive, powerful thing an individual can do. You're here. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah, we, we kind of picked on Pete because he gave us a really great example, but it's sort of uh, taking place in the culture at large. So he's definitely not the only one who's sort of like espousing that idea. There are a lot of people who have been of the mind that we've gone past the point of politics and that the very next step is a society-wide civil war. However, when you ask the person saying there will be a civil war, what the sides of that civil war will be, they have a different answer. Every single person, it's this group versus this group. No two people are like, they're definitively a left and a right and those forces are going to fight. People are like, no, it's the it's the communists versus the uh, capitalists or the next person will say, oh, it's the white versus the blacks. And then the next person will say, oh, it's men versus women. I mean, nobody nobody knows really who the combatants are in this supposed society wide war we're about to have amongst each other in America. And the thing is, you go outside on the street, none of that's happening. Everything that we're going through on Twitter, that's not happening in the street. There are exceptions. Portland, maybe. There are exceptions. But most people, for the most part, get along. I don't know what my neighbor across the street, I don't know what his politics are. We drink beer together. We don't bring that stuff up. Uh, he might be completely politically opposite from me, but it doesn't stop us from like being neighbors. And so I do think that that like, it's exaggerated quite a bit, like on Twitter and social media, more than more than um, we like to admit. Because <laughs> we're, yeah, we're that just drives. That just drives that that penchant for violence, I think it ratchets it up so much when you can see somebody as a, you know, they have a political flag or sign in their yard and suddenly they're, they're the enemy. And that friend enemy distinction just came up in a Curtis Yarvin email. I don't know if you guys read him, but he made this point from a secular perspective about, um, you know, violence being both not efficacious and not moral, which was kind of an interesting take from someone who's not a Christian and, you know, the father of the alt-right or whatever. Interestingly, I, I do think that um, 
since you brought it up and sorry to roll over you, Cody, uh, we have these values because of Christianity. So whether you believe that you're espousing them because of Christianity or not, they're part of our culture now because of the social change that the first human rights movement in history, which was the Christian way, started on this planet. Things, the reason that we feel like it's wrong to kill our enemies in the first place is because of Christianity. This is my, my, my pet theory anyway. I know there are others who have written about it more academically sound than I have, but it to me, it's apparent. There are lots of times in history where military powers who were stronger were Christianized. That shouldn't have happened. The stronger military force should have rolled through. That culture should have taken over, but it didn't. That Those people came over, took the land, and then became Christians. So there's a, a, a power in it that had changed the face of the world, including the way that people feel morally about things like violence and killing. I, I don't think that's your pet theory, by the way. Uh, Tom Holland, he's a theologian, not, not Spider-Man, uh, wrote a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Um, and I believe he's agnostic and he makes essentially the point you're making. And I think I just saw where Bart Ehrman, the agnostic uh, textual critic who's made a point to write a book about what's wrong about Christian, like every uh, basically anything you can think of that's wrong about Christianity, why not to believe it, uh, had recently posted on uh, social media that he was considering writing a book about how Christianity had made the world a better place. <laughs> oh, I would love that book. Yeah. yeah. Write um, that book. I want that book. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that's, that's definitely part of it. I, I think what's, what's interesting is um, I was sort of reacting to what Pete was, you know, it's almost like, let's assume that Pete is right. And that there's, there's really this civil war thing that's happening. His approach is wrong. But mm -hmm. I, I think what, what's interesting is I think you guys kind of backed up a little bit and said, uh, but actually he's not right. <laughs> like there really isn't like this horrible civil war going on in the real world. Um, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's Twitter and occasionally it spills out a little bit and, you know, and, you know, people wearing, you know, black masks in Portland or something. Um, so yeah, but, but I, I think, you know, coming from a Christian perspective, especially, um, you know, th there's a word that, that we like to say and it, that word is grace. And I think what we're dealing with is a secular world that has left religion behind but humans can't exist without religion. So we've created a new religion, um, the secularists have, but the one thing that religion doesn't have is grace. And you see it like in cancel culture on the left, you see it with a sort of approach that, you know, uh, everybody's my enemy and I need to be willing to fight and kill. And, you know, this kind of paranoia and not to pick too much on Pete, but I thought it was sort of fu the funny that, um, that John's argument or defense of Pete was like, oh, he's not a bad person. He's just paranoid and out of touch with reality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm, I'm putting words in your mouth. That's just how I, that's just how I read it. Um, but uh, so, you know, I, I think that that's, it's, there's, there's a lot of angles with which to approach this. I mean, for me, the grace thing is important because, you know, if Jesus is, is right, then on judgment day, God's going to show me the grace that I showed others I'd like to be pretty patient. I'd like to show a lot of grace um, for people and their dumb ideas because he's going to have um, to do <laughs> So in order not to pick entirely on Pete. Um, because, Let's keep picking you know, on Pete. <laughs> yeah, a little punching bag today. There was another comment when um, Cam actually put up the preview for this episode. On Twitter, there were comments that arose almost instantaneously just by the very suggestion in the title of the episode 
that one is to love their enemies. There was sort of like an instantaneous defensiveness on the part of some people sort of like reacting. I don't know if it was to the image on the video or if it was to the title, but there was a reaction. And I'm not gonna call this person out by their specific name. I'm just gonna read the comment that they wrote. Um, and uh, they said, um, I get what you're warning about being loving your enemy, that you're not supposed to hurt your enemies. I get what you're warning about. And I agree that's dangerous. But where we but where we are, but we are where we are because for 60 years we didn't pay attention to um evil's formula. And this is what evil's formula is. First we overlook evil, then we permit evil, then we legalize evil, then we promote evil, then we celebrate evil, then we persecute those who call it evil. And you do see a sort of culture gone awry right now with you know, that, that wasn't uh, a libertarian who commented that, right? Because that's a, that's a that's a pretty hardcore conservative argument. I wonder if this person would call themselves libertarian. They might. Yeah. It's interesting because there's a lot of like sort of crossover in that yeah. realm where that somebody is sort of coming from neo. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to ask if they were 65. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's a young lady, actually. Oh, it's a it young like lady, a dude. Oh, I don't want to call this person out. I thought it was a girl. Sometimes I think people are girls. Back to they're... Pete. No. Yeah. No, it's not a girl. Is, okay, so there, anyway. there is one. But there was... so I wanted to just to round the point I was trying to make out because I was actually going somewhere with that. You do see a culture gone awry. You see gender problems. You see uh, sex being sold or not sold, but uh, promoted in the schools. You see a lot of things that people would say are indicative of a culture gone completely bad and completely awry. And that's because we've allowed this evil to kind of permeate because we're not supposed to fight where, and we're supposed to be kind and we're supposed to be tolerant. And because of our tolerance, we've allowed this kind of evil to continue. And so I think that's where a lot of people were coming from when they say that you have to allow that space for political violence because otherwise you're going to allow drag queen story hour sure. as a example I, I, i'd imagine that the roman empire had a lot of drag queen story hours i mean oh, <laughs> yeah. i mean I'm, I'm kind of i'm being a little bit facetious but i'm not like i mean this this was a really super pagan world super uh, illicit when it came to sex um i mean it's it was anti-christian in every formula i mean in, in every way really and what did the christians say we do they say we love our enemies when they leave out their babies to die we adopt them uh, we mm -hmm. show kindness. We 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 rather die ourselves than than you know to kill them, and that was the way they thought you were supposed to do it. Now, listen, if this person wants to make an argument from a secular position, we can argue with it on pragmatic grounds whether it really works. Um, but but for me, it's 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 a foregone conclusion. If I follow Christ, I don't care if it works or doesn't work. I'm not doing it. Um, <laughs> I, saw, I saw this uh, this dude, this Amish guy, giving an interview on like a local TV station in like Lancaster mm -hmm. or something uh, about vaccine mandates. And I remember the weight of his detraction from um, the vaccine mandate, like affecting their livelihoods or whatever, was really interesting because it carried all this gravitas because the Amish really have, I think, demonstrated a better version of, of American Christendom than the American church by and large. And so like to that point about we've, we've permitted evil, we've, you know, tolerate, I don't think that there's been a Christian tolerance to the world that we find ourselves in. I think that there's been really 
really terrible versions of fighting the like leftist paradigm on its own terms. And, you know, Cody and I have talked about this a bunch, but like, I think one of the most important parts about like this political conversation is a, ma- a matter of changing frames and, and not having the conversation on the terms that have been set out for us. And so like, I don't care about curriculum arguments. I care about abolishing the DOE and, and getting things down to a, a neighborhood level on kids' education. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, you can't have that conversation if you're memeing like a boomer and saying that like, you know, this was just your tolerance's fault that we got to this point. Like, no, it's not. It's because you're bad at fighting, um, <laughs> which is really important, I think, if we're to take next steps. Well, I think that's right. And, and when you say bad at fighting, um, when the person says you're tolerating it, I imagine what they're saying is you didn't, you know, pull out a shotgun and say, you know, gays aren't going to be getting married in my town. And maybe that's not right. what they mean, but that's kind of what not I Not this time. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, to talk about how you approach this, like you mentioned the Amish. I mean, in 2006, there was the gunman who murdered like all these Amish school children. And the mm-hmm. response of, of these Amish families was to go to the family of the murderer and let them know that they'd forgiven their mm-hmm. their son, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, or just talking about a prime. I think that's a better approach, but but it also like works in other in other contexts. So um, I, I've read a couple books on um, there was this village in in France, uh, and I don't speak French, so I'll see if I can pronounce it properly. Uh, La Chambonne sur Lignon. Um, and it was basically this village where all these people followed their pastors and peacefully resisting Nazi demands to turn over their Jewish residence. Mm-hmm. They just said, we're not going to do it. That's it. We're not doing it. I'm sorry. We're not doing it. <laughs> and the effect of their resistance was basically to weaken the resolve of the occupiers. So like there were, there were reports like up the chain of command that these people had lost faith in the, the soldiers they'd stationed in this village um, because mm-hmm. they were being affected by what these people were doing. Now, if that had happened in mass, the Nazis would not have been effective at all. Basically, we think of part of the problem is I think libertarians in some ways have fallen, at least right, some right libertarians have fallen for this um, idea that power is this, how do I, how do I want to say this? That, that the state like has power almost like by, as a birthright. It's this thing that the state has. And, uh, you know, we don't have it and we might get lucky and defeat them if we fight with all our might. We get all the weapons we can and we topple them because state power has to be met with a similar power. Um, And that's not really how it works because the state essentially functions on our allowing it to happen. You know, basically, Mm -hmm. if if you give away a a assent or consent, it falls apart. And, um, you know, there's a theologian, Douglas John Hall, who said that love is always harder to explain than power. And I think the person who's commenting that, I think that's true for them. If, if we were to try to sit down and explain these, this, maybe they would get it, but I think it would be harder to get them there because we have this sense, like I said earlier, that if only I had a gun, if only I could use this violence, maybe I could, I could win. And it's like, yeah. maybe, probably not though, you know, <laughs> and especially when it comes to fighting the state, uh, violent revolutions are always far less effective than nonviolent revolutions. There've been there's actually a lot of data on this. I could recommend a book, but I can't think of the name of the author. I think it's called How Civil Resistance Works. Erica Chenoweth is one of the authors. There's two. Um, and she's has all this, they did all this research showing that, you know, of course, revolutions off usually fail, but a nonviolent revolution is much more effective than a violent revolution. Um, and it's that 
that sort of widespread giving away of consent that can be loving. It does. You don't have to be trying have hate in your heart for the people that you think are wrong. Um, but but it's basically saying we're not going to respond the way that you do. We're not going. We're not. We don't care about power and violence. We care about love and doing the right thing. Um, so in, in, I might just give one more example of this. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Daryl Davis. If you guys heard of Daryl Davis? Oh yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Just, you go ahead. The black man who went to the KKK. And yeah. essentially it was like, hey, meet me. I'm cool. And he actually, there are like 60 some members of the KKK who no longer are affiliated um, with that organization. It's, it's more than that. I think the, the, uh, in my reading by 2017, which is one of the articles that I read, he convinced over 200 Klansmen to leave the KKK. And, now, and I do in the work. Yeah. Now, do you yeah. think that would have been effective if, if he went and threw rocks at their house or if he went to burn a cross at their, in their front yard? Uh, no, but, but I think there, there's, there's a lot to be said. For, I mean, the Apostle Paul, I think, is one of the perfect examples. Here's a guy that no Christians trusted because he was murdering them. And then by the end of his life, he's one of the, the, the chief theologians in the Christian movement. He's starting churches everywhere. He's respected and looked up to. Um, and it was because they welcomed him. They were list, willing to follow the, the leading of the Spirit. And he was changed. Um, so anyway, those are some examples I, I might point to of that, of just how ineffective violence is. And it's really... It's violence is, is uh, the, the first refuge of the idiot. It's it's for the person who's uncreative, um, who, uh, you know, often, I don't know. I, I, I That's kind of a mean thing to say. I think there are sometimes, sometimes there are situations where I really do understand why people go there, like self-defense. But I think for people who are, are so quick to say violence is going to solve it, I just, I think it's immature. I think it's stupid um, and, and it's uncreative. But I think everybody thinks they're defending themselves. Nobody yeah. imagines themselves as an, as an aggressor, especially yes. when you have this enormous bureaucratic machine that just continually rolls on in, you know, this disjointed way. I think it's, it makes it easier for people to imagine themselves, regardless of what group they, they align with as mm. um, yeah. being an oppressed class and therefore any violence is, is worthy in the name of self-defense, especially mm -hmm. today. Like, I, I don't think people are taking like the, the fascist, like the state supremacy line as an explicit political ideology. I think instead everybody's trying to vie for the ultimate victim oppressed status yeah. to justify, you know, whatever. Sure. Okay. They, they taught my kids CRT, so I'm a victim and I can respond, right? right. I can just respond right. to self-defense. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the really one of the big examples politically on this, I think, is the abortion debate, like mm -hmm. because it's it's really it's a really heavy. I think it's it's one of the highest stakes arguments that people have, because if the pro-choicers are right, then what pro-lifers are saying is we want to control what women are allowed to do with their bodies. And that's that's a pretty I mean, that's a pretty hardcore extreme position if, if, if they're right about that. Right. And right. if the pro-lifers are right, what's happening is that they're you're, you're killing human beings. And so that's that's a pretty high stakes position in, in both directions. But what's going to be effective? I mean, you know, you hear about the people who stand out in front of Planned Parenthood and scream and, and cuss and call names. Does that, does that change minds? No, it doesn't. But 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 I think it's one of those things that if we if we, I think I, I don't know if I want to say this. I, do. I, don't, I, <laughs> I don't believe people who say that. Um, 
I don't believe a lot of times when people say they believe violence, uh, particularly pro-lifers who um, say that they're not pacifists, um, but they don't take a violent posture toward abortion doctors or something, right? I feel like my position is consistent. I'm saying it's not going to work, it's not effective, and it's not right. And I feel like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, there, and I, sorry, go ahead. There's an important point to that, though, as far as like people willing to do their own violence. Yeah. Because there are a lot of people who believe that violence should be done, but that mm -hmm. others, such as the state, police forces, military forces, are the ones who should be doing it. So it's, yeah. I want violence, but I want soldiers to go commit violence for me. Yeah. And they're done. Thank you for your service. Yeah, and then thank you for your service. Here, here's a discount at the Pottery Barn. Thanks for killing for me. It's kind of a monstrous thing, but um, I don't think that most people have the fortitude to actually like commit violence on anybody who yeah. might be able to visit it back on them. Yeah, no, Cody, it, I think I think that in some ways, though, like that, it's a testament to one, like the stickiness of the the question about abortion, which mm -hmm. is you know intractable by nature, which I think is why it's so, you know, heated and also convenient for political groups. But yeah, I, I think it goes to show that like, maybe you can just as easily argue that they're taking the high road by not, you know, shooting up abortion clinics, but they still believe it. I don't think it, I don't think it takes away from their position necessarily. Um, and I, I do think that there's, it, it's easy to hand wave a lot of the right and the boomery sort of memes like we were talking about earlier, but like there is a, I, I believe a clear and distinct movement away from the moral and ethical grounds that we took from like an early Judeo-Christian West and from like an individual or liberty-minded political order. And I think people on the right who sense this shift and then all of the like you know, different things that crop up um, that are politically relevant, like, you know, formula shortages or whatever, are mm -hmm. are just little ignitions for the this flame. And it's it's I don't I don't think it's unjustified to imagine yourself, I guess really in any group, of being um, targeted or attacked or oppressed or whatever. Um, I just think we as Christians have a duty to break that frame and say this is all like a, this is a farce and the argument that we're having is an argument contrived for us to have and if yeah. instead of playing on a field that we're asked to play on we subvert it entirely as the christian ethic so often does by by loving then then we are going to win by by showing a, a, a new way of doing things, not that any given political form is correct or incorrect. Yeah. I think when you were talking, I was reminded of the every year during Christmas, there's a commercial. Um, I can't remember the company that it's for, but it's a British commercial. And it shows there was a Christmas day during World War One where mm. the German side and the English side ceased hostilities because it was Christmas Day. They met in no man's land and they played football, what we know as soccer, shared cigarettes, drank together, sang Christmas carols, prayed together. The next day they would go back to shooting each other and killing each other. But for that minute, they were not enemies and nothing that they were fighting about had anything to do with them personally. So a lot of times we're sort of like taking on these um, causes that don't always belong to us and hating people mm -hmm. that don't aren't necessarily a threat to us. 
it's just we, we sort of like write large all, everything gets uh magnified today and so now i'm you know i have to personally end abortion you know like that's um no one appointed me to do that um i'm not effective i'm not going to be effective at doing that um but i feel completely responsible to do it and, and yet powerless and yet powerless and so because that's a breeding ground and judicial so it's like you know these it's maddening and which is why i think if you're not arguing for like reducing the size and scope of the federal government you're not having a political conversation worth having because from the rights perspective um because like that's that's it like if we can tone everything way down if every decision is made in washington dc or at the supreme court and instead like communities come together and make decisions that are relevant to them um you know this roe v wade thing is a perfect microcosm of the flaws of all of our political discourse mm -hmm. i i i think I think it, it, what I was maybe getting with the, with the abortion comment, because I'm certainly not encouraging people to shoot up abortion clinics, no. is, that, is that, and that's why I was like, maybe I shouldn't say this, because maybe, because because I I think that there are there are like three types of people who commit violence. There are the insane, um, the mentally disturbed. There are uh, those who are sort of put in a corner and they feel like they have to, and I understand that, the self-defense kind of approach. And then those who do it, um, or support it because the state's doing it because other people are doing it with them and it's given us an air of legitimacy because right. I think most people know that it's not right and and I think also most people know that it's not effective um, and I think you know when, when I've when I've read people who aren't pacifists give arguments for why you shouldn't shoot up abortion clinics or whatever or blow up abortion clinics not shoot up let's just say we don't want people shouldn't be hurt but the clinics or whatever right um, what they're saying is, you know, well, it's not practical. They recognize that it's not practical in that case, but they want to argue that it's practical in so many other cases when we invade Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, they think it, they think it works when it supports what they want to do, but when it gets, you know, when it gets a little too sticky for them, then they, they, they say, okay, well, it doesn't actually work. And so there's, I think there's an acknowledgement that it's not the right thing to do and it's not the pragmatic thing to do. Uh, but I think we just, we don't, we don't want to completely give up on violence or hating our enemies because, um, we it makes us feel powerless. Um, we want to have that sense of power that we can do something if we have to, um, and 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 that you know if this, if we can get the state behind it, then then it's actually okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, dur during the French Revolution, when they were such a big fan of cutting off people's heads, mm -hmm. it was there was this kind of idea of if we just cut off a couple more heads. We just get the wrong people out of the way. We can go to this perfect society where there's no violence and no one has to kill anyone anymore if we just cut off a couple more heads. And you were kind of making this point earlier. It, it almost made me laugh out loud because the actual minutes from the uh, Committee of Public Safety during the French Revolution talks about just a few more heads. We just need a few more heads. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, 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 the Soviets we're undergoing a perpetual revolution, right? You know, it was always in the future, you know, my, my, my kids, my kids may live in communism. One day we'll get there, but you have this perpetual revolution because you're never going to get rid of the people uh, that you think you need to, in order to have the perfect world, but also because the people in power don't want to give it up. Uh, so, so it's, it's always the, re it's always a revolution. We're always in the revolution. So somebody who disagrees with the state is anti-revolutionary. It's like, okay, guys, the revolution should be over by now. If you if you haven't figured it out yet, just pack it in. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, that I think that what bothers me about 
the way people talk about this is it does seem to me that people and it, it worries me about individuals so be it uh that guy who wants to kill all protestants on twitter or pete or whoever people don't seem to realize how corrosive these thoughts are mm -hmm. they don't seem to realize how corros corrosive it is to their entire being like this is this is not something that makes you better this is not something that puts you in the headspace to do good. This is not salvific at all. You know what I'm saying? And this this really bothers me. And I remember when I was in college, I did a like a church history course. And of the church history course, we looked at the early church and guess how how long the section on um, whether or not uh, Christians would partake in war or be in the military or would take up the sword was in that book. A sentence. sentence. A sentence. That was less than I was going to guess. I was going to say a page. I was going to give them a whole page. It was like a sentence. And <sighs> you have these... The, it's, I, I feel I've always felt sorry for those who have become soldiers or have joined the army or the marines or whatever and have been sold a bill of goods they've been told what they're doing is good that it's honorable um there's this a lyric in a Coulter wall song um like uh, what is it um that every time i hear it i'm like i love this guy's music but every time um i hear this lyric i just want to uh scream um, <laughs> let's see if i can find it um but he he says uh well, he died for his country, and he died for his kin, and he died killing men, a most honorable sin. Part of me cringes because it's called honorable, but the other part of me is happy that it's called a sin. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the early church, if you look at like Tert Tertullian, for example, um, there's this really great quote. He says, you know, only without the sword can a Christian wage war. The Lord has abolished the sword. And that was the the common idea with the with exceptions of course cody's like looking for stuff to pull out right now but <laughs> early on there were there were christians who were tortured and killed or put into gladiator fights because they wouldn't join the military because they wouldn't kiss this this the state statues and pay the, the you know they wouldn't do the things that the state wanted them to do and if you there's a there's a website enemylove.com which i think is fascinating that i came across this um but we don't realize i think because we we tend with the exception of some people who are in good old school high liturgical churches they don't realize our history they don't re realize how christianity was not a sword religion it was a peace religion it was a martyr religion it was a it was the way of doing things correctly and then you know the the picture on this episode that i chose is important to me it's an image that's been in my head for a while and it's because i started looking into revelation a little bit because people were like hey let's do an episode on revelation and i'm like oh the hardest book in the bible to do an episode about yeah let's do that um so i you know i was reading some different stuff and i'm struck by this image I'm, i i can't tell you the verses 
I can't give you, maybe uh, Cody will help me out with some references in a second. But John is in, he's having his revelation. He's, he's seeing what God's showing him. And they, they talk about, who, you know, who can open up the seals? And he hears it said, the lion of the tribe of Judah is strong enough to open these seals. But when he looks, he doesn't see a lion. He sees a slain lamb. Mm. Not a living lamb, a slain lamb, which is fascinating because, you know, we're talking about, about violence and some of the things that were said earlier really jumped out at me. But if, have you ever heard of what happens when a, um, a male lion takes over a pride? Do you know what goes on in that animal's ecosystem? You just kill all the other males, right? Well, he, he doesn't just... So what, what, it, what a lion does when he takes over is he doesn't, he doesn't just kill the other males. He essentially in a lion pride, all of the babies come from one man, mm -hmm. one lion. And in order for the lionesses to go into heat and to be ready to make new babies, they can't have cubs around. Mm -hmm. And so the lion, when he takes over the pride, kills the cubs to force the, the lionesses <clears throat> to go into heat so he can then create the pride in his image. I hate to tell you, man, that's not just lions. There's a reason that babies look like their fathers when they come out. <laughs> yeah. But when John sees this vision and he hears a call for the lion of the tribe of Judah, he sees a slain lamb, which this is an image that we need to look at because later on when you, you see the battle, the great battle between the beast and the army of God, you see Jesus on a white horse, clad in white, sword coming out of his mouth, but before the battle starts, his robes are covered in blood. They're not his enemy. They're not his enemy's blood. This is not blood from doing battle. This is blood from being sacrificed. So within Revelation, there's this story and this this image that's put in there that shows us how we win the war, and we win the war the way Jesus won the war, which was self-giving, self-sacrificial love and not killing our enemies. It, it, it's, it's worth noting, Cam, that it doesn't just, he's not just described as the line of the tribe, tribe of Judah, he's described as a king who's conquered. And yeah. it's, if, if I recall, it's past tense, that he has already conquered. <laughs> and right. then he comes in as the lamb who's been slain. Yeah, and, and yeah. Because isn't the enemy actually death? Like death is the actual enemy. The final enemy. The final enemy, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the beast is is the enemy and the beast is, um, a wonderful image because there's a lot of conversation about what that beast is. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it looks a lot to me like Babylon. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure please insert some stuff in here, Cody, because you know that when I start talking about something I care about and I'm like, Hey, I want to put a slain lamb tattoo on my arm that I'm going to talk about it loudly for a second. But I, I want to know where your, your mind is on this. No, I mean, yeah. Revelation is an interesting book and it's, it's, I, I, read actually a lot about it recently and, and yeah i think that the the contrast is between the conquering king who is the lion of the tribe of judah who comes in as the slain lamb versus the dragon who uh, as i pointed out in some of my books i mean the dragon is satan of course he has seven crowns on his seven heads uh which seven is a symbol for completeness and of course crown is, is a symbol for power political power especially uh, and then he's the one who gives power over to the Babylon state, right? The the beast. 
Um, and that's not just the end times situation. So we put, put revelation all in the end. Um, but that's how Satan describes himself in Luke uh, chapter four, I think, as the one who gives power to every every nation and decides who's going to get that power. Uh, Jesus doesn't correct him on that point. That seems to be uh, the position that the New Testament stakes out. Um, John refer uh, in, uh, in John, I think Jesus refers to Satan as the God of this world three or four different times. Anyway, there's a lot. We talked about this in the past. There's a lot of data there. Um, and yeah, but I think what we're looking at is a kind of kingship that's different. Um, the yeah. kingdom of God is the spiritual kingdom. It's not a physical kingdom that has crusades and, and, and war and kills people. Um, the And I think this is something we haven't really said yet, but I think it, it should be said. As Paul says, um, our enemies are not physical. Our enemies are spiritual. Yeah. And our as a result, our weapons are not physical or are not carnal, as, as, as Paul says. They're spiritual weapons. So we fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons against spiritual opponents. And so we can talk about, and, and, and John made a good point earlier about um, the way that uh, we're sort of divided by the, you know, the political uh, leader, whatever. But but even they are not the ultimate enemy. The ultimate enemy is, are these spiritual powers that are behind everything. Um, and so I, I think that's why, you know, like as I said earlier, like it was a, uh, was a Douglas John Hall or Don Douglas Hall. Don, I'm screwing up my words here. He had said that love is is always harder to understand than power. Douglas John Hall. <laughs> And, and I, I think we don't get it because it is counterintuitive. You know, some scholars refer yeah. to it as the upside down kingdom. Um, it doesn't work the way we think it does. We think that, you know, if you if you aren't, uh, you know, a tough guy with a with a gun or whatever, then you're not you're not really talking about meaningful change. You're not talking about really doing anything. Um, and Jesus, the, the crucifixion suggests the opposite, that Jesus conquers uh, by sacrificing himself. And that's the, the big surprise um, that, if it, that I think Paul says is offensive to Jews, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and, and, and gen Gentiles don't get it either. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I think enemy love is, is such a key component because ultimately enemy love is how we defeat our enemies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we don't, I think it's it's really the only guaranteed way to defeat our enemies because if we don't change them, then we are handing them over to God to deal with them. Yeah. And one way or another, they, they get defeated. But um, uh, I want to say, was it Lactantius, uh, early church father, who said that when we return violence uh, for violence, we are defeated by our enemies. And just to nerd out a little bit, um, there was a uh, Star Trek movie, like the original Star Trek series, where uh, Kirk was on trial um, for killing someone by Klingons. Klingons were the notorious enemies of humans in this world. And giving him advice before he's going to speak for, for these people, Spock tells him, people will often strain to hear the sound of a whisper when all there is is screaming. And everything we've been talking about tonight kind of reminds me of that quote. I keep my, my, my brain keeps going back to that quote. Because it's like, yeah, I think when everybody is screaming, I, I am eager to hear a reasonable person. I'm eager to hear someone who's quietly talking. And I think that there's something in our nature that isn't <clears throat> just going to give over to the, per the, the most powerful person, the loudest person, the person, you know, who's taking over the space with their uh, ideology. It's not in our nature. We have something of God in our nature that makes us strain to hear the whisper. And so 
the idea that evil will take over this world if we don't take up a sword and fight it. To some degree, I think that that can be true, but the world is already fallen. The world is full of evil. That's not happening because you're not also killing. Yeah. You know, it, does that make sense? Yeah, it's a bit yeah. of an omission. So I'm sorry, Cam. Go ahead. I just said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of an omission that like the political process is more effective than than God and yeah. his uh, dominion. Like I, I, I've been thinking this entire time about like something practicable to walk away from this conversation with. And I, I go back to this idea about being in exile a lot in my mind. I, I really do think it's something that we have to choose uh, because the, the political conversations of the day that drive so much of this conversation about violence or whatever is it's just untenable for the Christian life, I think. And, you know, you can, you can have all the opinions you want about uh, the direction that the, the society we live in should go, the culture, whatever, but let, removing yourself voluntarily from it and living as an exile would live, um, I think is, is really the only way to begin this, this journey into loving an enemy, because like, what, what are these enemies? that we're supposed to love and what are we trying to achieve ultimately anyway? Yeah. Can I ask you, um, just to rewind a little bit to clarify for me, um, the political process is more powerful than, and I didn't hear the second part. Uh, by, by advocating violence, you're saying that, or you put violence for political ends would be saying ah. that you, okay. you think that the political process is more effective than God and his dominion over, you know, whatever, the earth or yeah. future or whatever. Thank you. And I don't, and I don't yeah. think it's just untenable. I think it's missing the point. Because I think that when you when you read the Bible, I mean, it, it says it. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. <laughs> it's Democrats. And so, yeah, it's those demon rats. Um, demon but, rats. <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, the, these people are not our enemies. These people are savable. These people are redeemable. These people are lovable. These people are changeable. And when we start these conversations, when we start talking about, as Christians, not as secular people, because I can't speak into that world. That's not my world. Um, when we start speaking this way, we start to do to them what the the u.s military has done to our soldiers which changes the people from people to a name or a number or an enemy or a flag mm -hmm. and it's it's like i said it's corrosive to you as a human being and i think it's i think it's sad that we so quickly jump to thoughts of murder to thoughts of the sword, to thoughts of destroying people who most likely are just broken and hurting themselves and don't have the slightest clue as to how to fix themselves, much less the world. But they've been told that they're there to change the world. Everyone's told they're there to change the world. And they've been told not to look to God. They've explicitly yeah. been told not to look to the one place where they could find that. Well, and, and, and you know, and it's you know, we're not, we're not of this world. Like it, Clement of Alexandria said, if you enroll as one of God's people, then heaven is your country and God, your lawgiver. Um, St. John of the cross said, I am a Christian. He who answers thus has declared everything at once, his country, profession, family, the believer belongs to no city on earth, but to the heavenly Jerusalem. 
Marcellus the Centurion, um, who was um, apparently, um, I, I want to say he was martyred, but I'm not sure. He said, I serve Jesus Christ, the eternal king. I will no longer serve your emperors. It is not right for a Christian to serve the armies of this world. We need to realize that and it's cool because if you look at the conversation that's happening right now and you ignore the little stupid quips and memes about killing and about hating your enemies or whatever, you see this, and I keep seeing it in weird places, be it on TikTok, be it on um, Twitter or Facebook, whatever, where people are starting to notice, even if they're, they take it into a place that's kind of silly or stupid, they're starting to realize that the battles that we're in right now are not physical battles. They're not even political battle battles. And spiritual. We're in spirit. We're, like, I don't think it's ever been clearer in my life that we're in spiritual battles. And the whole of the New Testament, the the what Jesus showed us when he showed, he showed us who God is in the clearest way possible. And that God gave up his own life and sacrificial love. So who am I? Who am I to see these people who are hurting and they're doing stupid things and they're doing evil things? Who am I to want them dead instead of redeemed? Is my question. I, I know I know it's uh it's not cool to quote John Piper right now because everybody's against the the young restless and reform movement and stuff. Uh, <laughs> and also his uh, oh, uh if it's a benefit, I don't know who that is. So you okay. can quote him. <laughs> <laughs> He's also getting referenced in all these sort of complementarian books or anti-complementarian books that are being written. But um, he said, I heard a sermon he, he did um, that was really amazing where he was reflecting on uh, Paul's statement in Romans 1.14, I am debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians. And he was reflecting on what that means. So Paul said he has this debt that he has to pay to Greeks and to barbarians, uh, to wise and unwise, so on and so forth. And uh, what he comment his comment on that uh, was, uh, think of a cultured despiser of the gospel. They hear the gospel, and like the Greeks, they say foolishness. Now, in our day in America, our conservative lifestyle and our biblical orientation is in danger of being so politicized that our fundamental response to people like that is disdain, not debt. Test yourself right now. You watch television, you look at political speeches, you walk the university campus and see how some may be dressed or whatever. And rising out of your heart is not the feeling, I owe them grace, but yuck. That's not Romans. That's not the Bible. If you come to the world with one colossal, well-argued yuck upon your house, you won't win anybody to Jesus. Hmm. And and I think, um, you know, obviously we can take that. You know, he's talking about how it's being politicized, but I don't know that, that I don't know what Pete's religious background is. <coughs> Excuse me. But, um, you know, politically, that's sort of the same thing that, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know you grace. I don't know you a certain sort of sensibility or, or, or compassion. You're, you're a bad guy. You're somebody I don't like. I think, I think you're wrong. I may be putting words in his mouth a little bit, but that's, that's essentially what I get out of that statement that, that I read earlier. Um, and I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's righteous. I also think um, it's not showing the grace that we would want others to show to us. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So anyway, I, I, this this idea of owing people grace, you've been given something, you've been shown some forgiveness and mercy from God, and now you're obligated to show it to others. If I could just for a second play devil's advocate, what would you say in the if someone responded to that with, well, that's all well and good until they line you up against a wall. That's all well and good until they line you up in front of a ditch. 
yeah. in which, you know, presumably they'll dispense with you. And uh -huh. so all of your, your grace and your tolerance has led you to massacre. Yeah. If then, you're a Christian, then you I get so. to be, then Sorry. I get to be mentioned in revelation Yeah, you got it. as one of the martyrs <laughs> under the altar. Yeah. So I mean, like, that's awesome. I'm, I'm there for that. Nice. If you're a Christian, you say so be it. Um, but, but I, but I think pragmatically, first of all, it, it, there is a, I, I, as, as John was sort of saying, although I don't know if you even, I don't think he used this word, there's a certain level of paranoia where people are seeing that where it's not a legitimate threat, but I, I think even where it's, it's been a legitimate threat, that sort of, I'm going to get them before they get me approach always makes things worse. Like right. that, that, that's never been the, the right way to handle it. That's never been the effective way to handle it. Um, and uh, I, I was just reading about, um, you know, the, the genocide in Rwanda. So, you know, uh, the, the Hutus felt like the Tutsis started it. Um, and so they were going, they planned this basic, this genocide. Hundreds of thousands of Tutsis are killed. Hundreds of thousands are, are raped by Hutus. Um, and they kind of got to this point where they said, we can't keep doing this. We have to figure something out. So they began this reconciliation process, which I think is hard for us to even imagine. I mean, how do you reconcile people that killed and raped people that you loved. But they said, we have to do it because if we don't, it's assured mutual self-destruction mm -hmm. and our mutual destruction. Um, so anyway, I, I, I just, you know, I, I anyway, that, that, that's where I guess that's sort of what I'd say to that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, it's, I, and I ask it not because that's sort of my idea, mm -hmm. but I know that if I were to say that, that would be the thing that came out immediately afterward. Well, that's all well and good until they line you up in front of a ditch. What do you say to that? Well, I agree with you amen as a Christian. And right. Well, and and also, it, and, what can you do when you're lined up in front of a ditch anyway? But yes. In the Colosseum, when Christians were torn apart by lions, mm -hmm. it did nothing but convert Romans. Yeah. Every Christian that was murdered in the Colosseum created 10 more Christians, 100 more Christians, in some cases, 1,000 more Christians behind him. Because yeah. they people were watching from the stands. I mean, why are these people singing on the way to being torn apart by a lion? It was craziness to them. They couldn't understand. Why are you so joyful yeah. that you're going to meet such a terrible end? And I think that that you know, spoke to a lot of people, certainly a, a lot more than the idea that they were the most powerful empire with the most powerful weapons and the most powerful soldiers, powerful soldiers, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think Alexander great, that was you know, the great thought that he'd conquered the world, but, but he died and that was it. And everything he had fell apart, but Jesus did. And he didn't do it by killing his enemies. <laughs> he did it by loving them. He did it through self-sacrifice. And in, um, John 13, I know he's talking to the disciples and he's talking to them specifically in relation to each other. But um, he says in John uh, 13, 34, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So when we love each other, when we love the world, when we are dying as a martyr, we are showing people. I can't imagine a more powerful instance of gospeling, of tell spreading the gospel. You know how we've talked about it before, Cody, of gospeling than sure. si sitting in front of the masses and taking on the same sort of death that Jesus had. 
Yeah, and yeah, and the, the the question is, is this all we've got or not? Do we trust God or not? Because if this right. is all we've got and we don't trust God, then of course it sounds like foolishness to talk about self-sacrifice and martyrdom <laughs> and loving your enemies, even though practically right. it does work in in many cases. Um, do you know? Do you know how? Yeah, you know how hard it was for me to get my mind around the idea that Osama bin Laden was someone that God loved and wanted to see yeah. redeemed. I was on the other side. I mean, it, my, my, my first big experience with that was George W. Bush. I was told that I should be praying for George W. Bush, and it had never occurred to me as a young, you know, liberal guy who hated George W. Bush that I should be praying for George W. Bush. That was tough for me. I, I started going to a liturgical church, and um, during the litanies, we say, Lord, have mercy for certain groups of people, one mm. of them being the civil authorities. And mm -hmm. my little anti-state butt was sitting there like, What? <laughs> the civil authorities. Well, you know, even if you don't like these people too much, you think that they're making bad decisions. Wouldn't you hope that they would be influenced by the Lord, that the Lord would have mercy on them and that they would make better decisions. You better bet your boots. You better pray for the civil authorities. They need it more than anybody. Yeah. Good point. Hills, I'm not the guy who pushes the button, but I think John's on his way to work now. So maybe it's, maybe it's a good time to wrap up. <laughs> oh no, no, no. You guys are good. This is great. <laughs> Um, but no, I mean, and that's, what's crazy is that verse in Matthew five, it doesn't just say to love them. It also says to pray for blessings for them, to bless mm -hmm. them and not to curse. And I can't help but notice my peers, people I'm, I, I wouldn't at this point, I wouldn't use the word libertarian on myself. I wouldn't use any political designation because i don't think it's important to me at all you know i mean it, i know that there are probably people out there be mad at me for saying that you know you should be concerned about what's going on in the world and i'm like i am and that's why i don't want to be a part of that that's why i want to change the world through following jesus and through hopefully um inviting other people to follow jesus so that we can bless those who curse us so that we can pray for those who persecute us. I think that's a really actually important point because when we talk about praying for our enemies, a lot of times people will think to pray for someone who's persecuting and then like, man, Lord, I, I hope, I pray that this person will stop annoying me. I hope, I pray that they'll stop persecuting me. But well, you're praying for yourself. <laughs> Instead, you're supposed to be praying for them literally, as Cam said, to be blessed to have good things happen to them in their life, for them to get the things that they want. And, and in that prayer, you're, you're doing what Cody said, which is you owe them grace. That's your job. It's your job to pray for them, specifically because they've been placed in your path as someone who annoys you and persecutes you and does those things to you. You were given them as a charge in, in terms of your, your prayers for them. Yeah. And and that's the thing for Christians out there. If you think about your so-called enemy, and I have to say so-called because I don't think they're really your enemy, but when you think about your so-called enemy and you want to see them hurt or thrown in prison or tarred and feathered or killed, stop. And I don't I don't mean stop like, hey, you stop that. I mean, you know, Shabbat, Sabbath stop and 
point it towards God. Hmm. Pray for, pray. Do you know how hard it is to pray good things for someone that has treated you terribly, like personally? But do you know how much that does for you in like a discipline sense? Like, I don't know if you've ever done this, but have you noticed how much it changes you when you stop wanting death for people and start praying for their life? Like it, it, like that moment about it. And I say it, I, I'll mention him again. That moment with Osama bin Laden <clears throat> and his death and the celebration that I had on my lips convicted me deeply and changed me from that moment. I am not the person I was before that moment. That's why I, I think that that is innate. That's that peace of God in us. Then that's why military might, even as strong as it has been, has not always been the victor, especially as we have moved on through history. It's actually that, that kernel of God that we recognize that we want to follow, that we want to be part of. That's why like the freest society on earth, which is you know, as for all of its problems, America is awesome in that regard that we've given this um, immense amount of human freedom to people that they've never had before on the planet and that we thrived as a result. So it's like there's a clear um, result, an action and result that comes from living peace of, peaceably, from allowing people to who are different than us to live their lives freely. It's just not something we're used to doing. It's new on the historical stage. That behavior is new. We don't know how, and it's difficult for us, but we're learning and we get better. I, you know, and I, I have positivity for the future. I don't think we're headed toward this horrible collapse of society. I, 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 I think either. things are, I think things are getting better. Um, but it does look like John did say he was on his way to work. So I don't want him to have to leave unceremoniously. So we should, we should wrap up. I wasn't um, sure if he was on his way to work or if he was going to like do a video about how Trump's going to save the country because he's in his car and everything. <laughs> I'm driving to a peaceful protest right now so I can go show how I'm nonviolent. Mostly peaceful. <laughs> mostly. Um, fiery, but mostly peaceful. <laughs> um, but I, I would like to know before I ask the, the seminal question of the show, is there anything else, John or Cody, that you want to add to this conversation? Or even if you want to summarize anything from it that you're going to take away, is there anything you want to leave the people with? I've got 10 pages of notes. There's a lot more I could say, but I'll <laughs> um, Yeah, I, I took a bunch of notes too. I, uh, I This was great. I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, uh, both of you I've interacted with or seen on social media for years through like um, AC group and stuff like that. Um, oh. So it's cool to be able to talk. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's so. I just I mean, sort of connected who you were all of a sudden. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, it's good. Um, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that voices like, these are, are being, you know, amplified. And I don't know that I share your guys's optimism so much. I do worry for at least the short to medium term, um, mm. having young kids. And, uh, I don't know, I, maybe I'm swept up a bit in, um, in the Twitter sphere, but I, I, I see the importance of our nonviolence being asserted from an institutional perspective 
especially like the church, I really wish and yearn for a, a peace posture from the American and Western churches because I think it's going to be more necessary in, in our lifetimes. And, and whatever things are going to look like, if they are bad, I know that, you know, I'm going to do my best individually. And I think that that's something that every Christian should really grapple with and, and consider um, the weight of and um, remember Matthew 5 and, and the importance of, of being meek in the face of, um, of you know, chauvinistic power or whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so thanks so much, guys, for having me on and listening to me drone on. <laughs> I don't think great. anyone had a chance to drone. We've all been like throwing ourselves in there where we can. Um, <laughs> since since you're driving, I'll ask you the last question, which I think uh, I think is important, and then maybe we'll bug Cody for a few more minutes. Um, but uh, there, as I've explained multiple times over the last two years, there's been a lot of desperation. There's been a lot of depression. There's been a lot of sadness, and people who feel like they've lost hope, who don't see a light at the end of the tunnel, who don't see hope. And so we do like to cap off these conversations with the question, um, what is something in your life right now? It could be any form, local, personal, global, whatever. What are you seeing that gives you hope and motivates you to carry on? Um, I, I did a the gratitude journaling practice for a while. It's fallen out of my routine because I have three young boys. But um, I, I would say first and foremost would be my my family, my direct family. I, I bought a house about six months ago, been renovating it. I have three boys, uh, three, two, and two months old. Um, I have a lot to be grateful for and a lot to be hopeful for. Um, you know, I, my wife is amazing. I I truly do believe that um, that goodness will, will stand, um, at, when the dust settles, whatever that looks like. And, and, you know, the idea of, of light, um, driving out darkness is something that I really hold to, uh, especially in times where there seems to be a lot of like tumultuous political conversations. Um, because whether I'm right or not, doesn't really matter to me so much as whether or not, you know, I can stand, uh, proud of my, my, being a Christian and being a Christian example for my sons. Um, so I would say my, my boys, uh, Ezra, Abel, and Elias, I'm very <laughs> fortunate for. And I can, I only say their names because my first interaction with you was a picture of your boys. And one of them I know is named Ezra, which was my first yeah. known connection with you. I'm glad that after you named one of them Abel, you didn't name the other one Cain. Because mm -hmm. that would have been a bad yeah. well, thing. It's actually a pretty uh, common Spanish name, which I didn't know until I started doing ER nursing in this new area. I've had several canes, C-A-I-N. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting. Like, mom, <laughs> why do you hate me? <laughs> like... Well, maybe it's just the um, the interest in like recognizing their their fallen spirit and trying to be better. That's actually, I, I, now that I'm thinking about it, there's a, a, a trend in the naming um, conventions in, in Spain. I think that like one of the names that's quite common, I think it's Esperanza means sadness. And so there is this trend of um, sort of uh, names that remind you of things that you should remember. 
and Kane would definitely fall into that category. Yeah. I, I hope it's okay that I outed one of your kids' names. I don't know how no, you're, public you are about that. You're good. I have five of them. If, if we lose it, <laughs> we, if we lose them, we'll make another. Uh, no, but no, I, I yeah. Peter Q is coming for your uh, children. Seriously. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I laughed, obviously, when you said the first child, your first son's name, because that's also my first son's name. Um, it's a great name. Which I, w- which I I actually fought my wife to name the second one Abel and lost. Oh, interesting. And and I won with a different name, which is Soren, but still that uh we didn't think about Elias, but we do have uh a middle name of Elijah, you know, coming up, coming off that. Should have used yeah. a sword, then you would have a kid named Abel. <laughs> Coulda, woulda, shoulda. <laughs> we had a uh my wife is a prep school student. I'm totally derailing, so you can just shut me off whenever, but um there was a student her you know, very, very expensive school. And uh, her, her parents were like Holly or are like Hollywood producers. And her name was, I don't know that I should, her name was ever, which we absolutely loved as a name. And we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. And we were trying to think of a name similar to that. And when it struck us that Abel had both like the, you know, Abel connotation as a, typical English word and then like the beauty of the, the biblical uh, representation it's it's unfortunate I didn't know that it was in like that famous motorcycle gang show yeah like, yeah, yeah, yeah. sons of anarchy yeah the yeah, sons of anarchy. T- kind of takes away from it for me but uh, <laughs> he's still Just the coolest for quick clarity the name was Dolores that mean that means sadness Esperanza means hope actually so I kind of had yeah, this Dolores flip, means sadness huh it means sadness it means sorrow no I wonder if that's why it's like an old lady name in the U.S. Yeah. Great Depression babies. There's this um, also kind of like convention of like um, the sorrow of the mother of God and things of that nature that you're kind of like mm. emulating. You have this daughter and you're wanting her to sort of maybe um, emulate the mother of God or follow in the footsteps of the mother of God. And her sacrifice was one of sorrow. And so right. I can I understand the pathway that that went, especially with like catholic spain mm. and the name mara means bitter so that's fun. Oh, yeah a little bitter child Go thanks with that. mom <laughs> <laughs> all right guys well thank you so much hopefully we can do this again sometime absolutely it was great thank to you. meet you man yeah same cody yeah. I, I can't say the same okay <laughs> hey not, i love you buddy yeah it's, i love you too and thanks for thanks for getting me on the mad ones man absolutely <laughs> all right Thank Bye. you. That guy's a jerk. I, <laughs> I didn't realize that I knew him from the Anarcha Christian group, but I have totally interacted with that guy a bunch of times. Yeah. And was two hours into a conversation with him before I was like, oh, I know you. I know you from somewhere. I promise I'm not a pothead anymore. That <laughs> was just not knowing who he was. Um, Jesse means angry woman. Hmm. I don't know if it's true, but I believe it. I mean, um, <laughs> I believe anything that someone calls himself PP Steve tells me. So. It's right. Yes. Yeah, I read it. On, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. Um, My goodness, this cold! I keep having to mute just so that I don't sound like a like a horrible sick person. Oh, you there sound like a horrible sick person, but not because of the illness permeating. Not oh, is it just? It's it's, it's in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, Cody, I did. 
Yes. <laughs> Your name is not Cody. Your name is <laughs> no, Jessica. but I, I agree with the direction that you're taking because this entire bottle of water is inside of me right now. So <laughs> <laughs> gross. Um, no. <laughs> the liquid that was in this bottle of water. I, I didn't even think of it the way you thought of it. <laughs> well, you're in trouble. See, that's what you get. Yes, yes I am. Um, you want you to answer our hope question? Yeah, you know, so you've had me on here a few times and I've given different answers. And, uh, you know, John mentioned his wife and that sounds good, but I think I said that before. Um, and so my answer is going to, it's going to seem like it doesn't fit with what we've been talking about. Um, but, um, I'm going to say capitalism because, <laughs> or, or the, or the relatively free market, because when, because when we talk about progress, I mean, there, there's, there's a connection there with prosperity, right? I mean, the fact that people can feed themselves and take care of themselves and that we're moving in a direction um, that is a good direction. Uh, that there's a book, is it 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know by uh, Ronald Bailey. And I mean, we, we've ultimately, in, in very rapid succession, we've, we've not entirely abolished, but, but really eviscerated what's called extreme poverty. And it's happened very quickly. And, and it's really the result of, you know, two things, really. One is the sort of, um, uh, they call the rule of law, which really just means that the state people who run the government have sort, some sort of accountability and don't play entirely by different rules, even though they kind of do. And the other, the other thing is free market and globalization. And I think that's really awesome. I love the idea that we can open things up and people can work and take care of themselves and we don't have to have this kind of whole world built entirely on charity for anybody to be able to eat. <laughs> the globalists. I'm thankful for oh. the globalists. And the it was super, it's really good. You're really good at that. <laughs> We're coming for you, globalists. <laughs> that gay frog thing is true, by the way. I looked into that. It's we true. Probably, we should probably save that for the next conversation. Yeah, okay, we will. Yeah. We're going to do Look a whole gay frogs episode. It's, it's funny. I think Cody is like one of the number one people that I ask, like, what should I do a show on? Who should I talk to? And then his, his um, recommendations just like don't answer emails or stuff. But is <laughs> you were you mentioned a complementarianism episode? Is that something you're interested in? Um, I'm me. I'm I'm not. I have some like thoughts on it. I'm kind of like a soft egalitarian or soft complementarian. I'm kind of in the middle. Mm. Um, so I I don't know. I don't I I don't know that that would be the best one for me. Maybe. Yeah. Mm. I think yeah, I we'll think... need somebody because I don't even know what complementarianism is. Well, and and so. So there are the views of humanity, men and women. There's egalitarianism and complementarianism. And when I'm saying an episode on that, I mean specifically kind of in the realm of church and ordination. Um, we, I was talking to, I'm in, I'm in a group chat now with uh, Glenn Peoples and Cody and Chris Date, and I kind of talked to Glenn about it a bit. And it's, I think it would be really interesting to talk to him in particular, because the moment I said, you know, this is a very interesting topic I'd like to talk about, he was like, and here's some of the things that I found that are kind of weird in this area, which I won't, you know, tell everyone the whole story right now. But it was funny because it was something that I'd also noticed. And it's a it's a very weird conversation. So maybe that's a Glenn Peoples conversation. It could you know be. What I would love. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 
I, I was, I was it, it could be something good for him, especially because he's an Anglican. Like I, I'm somebody who doesn't really believe in like the episcopacy, so it's like a kind of a, <laughs> I would give kind of a complicated answer to that question. Yeah. So what I would love is a website or a reference that lists all of these esoteric Christian terminologies and what their meanings are, such mm -hmm. as episcopacy eschatology things of this nature where if you're like me and you've wandered into christianity off the street three years ago and have no idea what any of these things are you can yeah. look for a quick reference um someone should make that website i should make that website eschatology is the study of the of the end <laughs> you see when a man is explaining it's mansplaining yeah and when a woman <laughs> does it it's wrong <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough <laughs> oh my god if i call four I, more time i have to pee too much to argue with you to be honest <laughs> <laughs> all right so with that um i'm gonna make cody sit here because he has to uh if you want to follow cody on twitter he's at cantus firmus if you want to follow john on twitter he's at anti-war war vet um cody also has his podcast and his website which is cantus-firmus.com, uh, which I'll put at the bottom of the screen, C-A-N-T-U-S-F-I-R-M-U-S.com. Um, and John also has his website, which is antiwarwarvet.com. Very easy, uh, very easy to remember, and you don't have to get out a uh, dictionary to figure out what the hell cantus means. So, Great. Uh, yeah, I, was trying, I can't remember if it had. I can't remember if it said had V in it. It doesn't. In fact, uh, because I used to wear, he sent me a, a ball cap that had the anti-war war vet like insignia, and it said anti-war war vet on it. But it, it didn't say the anti-war war vet, so I was sort of accused by people of like stolen valor uh, because they thought <laughs> I was saying I was an anti-war war vet, and so I had to stop right. wearing it, even though I, I I was really just trying to promote my friend's website. <laughs> <laughs> um, beyond that. Um... Let me see. What what do I need to tell you? Oh, next week, end of the month episode. Um, I think that most likely we're just going to do, me and Jessica, we're going to talk about what our plans are, what we learned this month, just kind of wrap it up. If you want to send us questions and us do an AMA, feel free to send us some for next week. Um, but that's that's all. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Ham Carlos. If you want to follow Jessica, she's at Soup Canarchist still. I'm yep. every time I say it, I'm surprised that it's still your name. <laughs> I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to join us for the occasional early episode, Zoom party, um, things like that, you can go to patreon.com slash the mad ones. Um, if you want a t-shirt or a mug, we are the mad ones.com slash store. Um, if you are listening, you can watch us on YouTube every Wednesday at 8:30 p.m. Eastern time. If you're watching now or you happen to be on YouTube. Well, if you're not on YouTube right now, go to YouTube, search, go to youtube.com slash the ones, use your browser, much easier to find that way because there's some stupid musical with the same name and you'll get a bunch of stuff or, you know, put in your YouTube thing, the mad ones, and then type my name or Jessica's name or Cody Cook. It doesn't matter. You'll get to us. Or, or podcast. To, to be clear, it's youtube.com slash the mad ones. So the V is yes. important. Yeah, so do that, subscribe, like this video, you know, share it, do all of the things. Um, if you don't like YouTube or the corporate technocracy, you can also go to the other technocracies, Rockfin and Odyssey, and find us on there. 
Um, and we're on all podcatchers, everything like that. That's all I have. You want to you leave pe- the people with anything, uh, Cody? I think I've said everything I needed to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't okay. believe you. I, I, I'm, I'm going to say one, one more thing. Uh, I, I still feel like I, I shouldn't have I shouldn't have mused about whether or not people were really serious about their violence because they don't blow up abortion clinics. I just want to say that <laughs> the point I was making was that people don't blow up abortion clinics, and that's a good thing. But they should follow that logic into other areas. Mm. <laughs> Thank you for the clarity because I was over here wondering how serious yeah. I really was about being pro life because I had not yet bombed yeah. abortion. Clinics. I thought you were going to say you were, you were emailing the FBI while we were talking. About <laughs> Yeah, I got him a speed dial. Well, for the rest of you, uh, we love you. And uh, you have a chance to be a light in the world. So uh, go light it up. (laughs) 